respect the right of everybody else. Uh, that, uh, continue, I guess. Um, I respect the right of everybody else to make their own decision. And that's my basic theme on this whole um, issue. It's personal choice. People should be able to, uh, uh, to make their decisions. I think we're, we're at, as I say, a, a very important time in Canada's history. And we're going to have to decide uh, what, kind, what kind of a country we, we want for ourselves. Right now, we've got people who are facing the loss of their jobs because of uh, uh, personal decisions, uh, health decisions that they don't think the government should be making for them. We have, um, even in some provinces, Christian pastors being hauled off to jail for, for doing very ordinary things such as, as conducting church services. And now we're going into an even more crucial stage where parents are going to be told uh, that they have to have their children vaccinated. And uh, I think we're already in a position where um, children, at least the over 12s, are in effect being forced to be vaccinated. I'll explain that. Um, even though the government uh, doesn't say every 12-year-old has to be vaccinated, if a 12-year-old comes to their parents and say, says, you know, I can't be on the, the school uh, uh, sports team or I can't be in the debating club or whatever it is, unless I'm vaccinated or if they say uh, my, my, my friends, my best friend's parents won't let me come to their house for a sleepover because I'm not vaccinated, those children are being forced and the parents are being forced to get their children vaccinated. And that's because of what I think is an almost toxic message that's come from the, uh, from the government. And uh, pretty soon it's gonna be the five to 11, so that's very close. And it's a fact that we have many parents um, who do not believe that their little children um, uh, should be vaccinated and they believe that they have the science on their side. So I think we're getting to a very, very interesting time in Canadian history when uh, the government is telling us uh, the government will make these decisions for you and you must comply. And I think we're going to get a very significant uh, percentage of the people um, uh, um, saying no, saying no. And I think that's what, is, what it's actually going to take before this thing will... Uh, uh, will end. So what I want to do today, and I don't want to take too much time uh, in my opening remarks here, I want to talk about four uh, places, four jurisdictions that have done things differently, where basically personal decisions were respected, and where they did not allow the, the government to simply um, um, uh, take over all of the decisions and become completely intrusive. And I'll discuss those uh, uh, those four places, uh, but I think I'll let D David um, uh, in on it because David knows that I tend to talk a lot and, <laughs> and in order to say anything, I better allow him in here right now. Go ahead, David. So Brian, do you want me to do the presentation now or? I think or maybe, maybe it would be a good idea for you to do the presentation at this time because you have it so well organized and then I can, um, uh, can get in and uh, I want to discuss, David, I want to discuss, and this will seem a little unusual, but of course, uh, Sweden, and you will discuss Sweden as well and Florida because that's, uh, 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 that is one of the 
well-known states took a different path. But then I want to discuss a, a, a rather odd country, which none of us have really even known much about, or I don't, Belarus. Uh, and, and I'll explain why I'm doing that. And the final example I want to use is the, the Amish, who've done things completely differently. So perhaps what I'll do is I'll let you make your, do your presentation now. And then if, if this is okay with you, and then I will uh, we'll go into some more detail on those, uh, those rather odd examples I've picked out. Is that, is that okay? Absolutely, let's do it. Okay. So first of all, I'm just going to uh, share my screen and uh, ask Maria if everyone can see it. Yep. Yeah, I can see it. Okay, so folks, for those of you that don't know me, I'll do really, really a uh, fast overview. I did 27 years in the Canadian Army. Uh, my family and I, we did 19 houses in 27 years all over the world. In my last uh, seven years, I was a commanding officer three times, two, three two-year appointments. My first job was to close all of Canadian Forces Europe LAR. That was to bring 18,000 Canadians home, closing out uh, 940 buildings, handing them back. Oh, shoot. Your sound is gone, David. Do you hear us? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Am I good there now? You. Good now. Okay. I'm not going to back up. Uh, uh, I did uh, 19 houses in 27 years all over the world uh, with my family, uh, serving in several war zones. And my job in the army was basically to run theater bases, close theater bases, and move troops in and out of theaters while actually being in the theater myself. I then retired in 1999 and I uh, found a job with Emergency Management Alberta. And my first uh, appointment was to run emergency preparedness in the municipal order of government uh, in assistance from the provincial government. But then on September the 11th, uh, by September the 12th, I had, was appointed by the Premier of Alberta to be the Director of Counterterrorism for the province of Alberta. And in the next two years worked with uh, the private sector, the public sector, all orders of government, and we put in place what became the cornerstone uh, process for counterterrorism on both sides of our border, uh, linking private sector with the, with the governments, each order of government. After two years of that, I then became the head of EMA. And one of the things I did in my last year uh, of employment with the government of Alberta in 2005 was to write the pandemic influenza plan for Alberta. So I understand what should have been done and what I'd like to get run you through for the next 35 minutes is a complete overview of what was planned, what we did, and how to get out of this mess. So I'll start off, I hope. Let's start with the fact that pandemics happen continuously. In my lifetime, I was born in 1954. In my lifetime, there's been five. This is the fifth. And so if we think that what we're doing now is right, we've never done this before. The last four, we never used the, uh, the non-pharmaceutical interventions. If we believe that what we're doing now is correct, we will respond to pandemics like this in the future, and that simply cannot happen. Second, emergency management is the foundation for all response to all emergencies in our country. 
We train our municipal order of government, our provincial order of government, and our federal order of government to use the tools that come with emergency management, whether it's a fire, a flood, tornado, terrorism, or a pandemic. And yet in this pandemic, we have completely neglected all of the tools in that toolbox. The next point is a pandemic is a public emergency. It has never been and never will be a public health emergency. And I'd like to explain that. So if you look at this slide, each one of these tubes is a sector of our economy. Now there's many more tubes than this, but I put a representational 10 on this screen because they fit nice. The energy tube includes things like our power grid, our oil and gas sector. Agriculture is both livestock and crops. You see health is a sector unto itself education, small business, tourism, finance, each one of those tubes works perfectly fine every day until they're hit by an emergency. And if an emergency hits more than one of those tubes or hits more than one municipality, emergency management systems kick in. The first thing that happens is we rely on our citizens and our employees to be ready to take care of themselves for 72 hours if they are not directly impacted by the emergency. If they are directly impacted, first responders respond to them and the municipal order of government has an operations center and is trained if the emergency is too large for simply first responders. But when it gets past one municipality and more than one municipality becomes severely implicated, then the provincial order of government steps in. Every one of our provinces and territories, 13 out of 13, has an EMO, and they have staff who are trained to bring across sector and across order of government coordination to the problem. Over top of our provinces is a federal EMO in Public Safety Canada that is responsible to link the responses and provide mutual aid between provinces and to also bring federal international assets if they're required. In each one of those situations, it's not the EMO who runs the response. It is the elected official, whether it's a mayor, a premier, or the prime minister. What the EMO does is coordinates the response of the entire order of government to support every one of the private and public sectors that build across. We see on the right-hand side, industry and facilities, and all of they, those organizations have their own emergency management agencies within them, and they fit between orders of government and the EMOs link it all together. We've seen exactly the opposite happen in this pandemic. Private sector has been excluded, municipal order of government has been excluded, all the other tubes in the provincial order of government have been excluded, and only health has been involved. So this process, this thought process, as well as structural process has been completely ignored. Before this pandemic, 13 out of 13 jurisdictions, all three territories and 10 provinces had pandemic influenza plans. They were written and designed for exactly this type of pandemic. And they were based on hard lessons learned from all of the previous pandemics, all the way back to Spanish flu in our country. One of the hard lessons we learned was when and when not to use what are called non-pharmaceutical measures. So let me describe that to you. On the left-hand side of your screen is a publication that was last produced in September of 2019. 
It was the best infectious disease mines in the world. Canada was included in the discussion and they produced this document. And you've got the link below. You can go get it for yourself afterwards. But there are 15 what are called non-pharmaceutical measures. Each one of the 15 is described in detail in this document, but this wasn't a new document. This document was first produced back in 2005 and it was updated about every five years. The latest version being released September, 2019. What it describes in its 60 pages is each of the 15 non-pharmaceutical interventions, what you now call lockdowns. They're listed on the right-hand side. For this pandemic, for this virus, three are recommended for use. Hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette, and isolation of sick individuals, sick individuals. Partially recommended, some other environmental measures, surface and object cleaning, face masks, face masks only in hospital set settings for people who are admitted to hospital who test positive, no one else avoiding crowding to a limited degree and travel advice. The one shown in red, contact tracing, quarantine of exposed individuals, workplace measures and closures, school measures and closures, entry and exit screening, inter uh, internal travel restrictions between provinces and between municipalities and border closures are not recommended, period, point final, for this type of a virus. Why? In every study from every pandemic up till now, it was found that the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions in most cases are largely ineffective. They simply do not stop the disease from spreading, but what they do do is cause massive collateral damage. And you would never use one of them without doing a full cost benefit analysis to see if the end justified their use. In the pandemic plans that we had written, in all of our provinces and territories, there are four overarching goals. The first is to control the spread of the influenza and to try and reduce death. The second, to minimize societal disruption. The third, minimize adverse economic impact. And the fourth is to make sure that we use resources across all sectors and across all orders of government in an effective manner, both during the response and during the recovery. I put it to you, we have failed in four out of four goals. And I'll explain that. The reason why we had these plans written in advance was so that when an actual virus showed up, we could tailor that plan to the specific virus. And then we would publicly issue a written plan to the public in every one of our 10 provinces and three territories. That way the public could see their role in the plan, understand that the government had a complete concept how they were gonna deal with the virus and the public would know what their role was. It also means that due diligence is met if a public emergency needs to be declared. And I put it to you, there is a very slim number of areas where a public emergency might have been required, and we'll talk about that later. That process is required. None of this has happened in any one of our provinces or territories. I would put it to you that our response to COVID-19 has been incoherent. Every day, your medical officers of health and your premiers are bouncing around. One day, they say to do something. The next day, they tell you to do exactly the opposite. 
And by using the non-pharmaceutical interventions that never should have been used, we have done an extremely deadly response. If you see the, the HTTPS there, that's to a paper that I wrote, published on July the 1st, and this entire presentation is going to be given to you, so you don't have to copy all this down. If you want a copy of the paper, you can click on it, download it for yourself. It explains step by step why what we've done is wrong. We focused on case counts. You never manage a pandemic on case counts. It's absolutely ridiculous, and we have completely failed. Let's take you back to February of 2020. On my smartphone, I was able to get this type of statistics every single night. What you see here is that back in February, we knew who was dying of COVID. People over the age of 60 with severe multiple comorbidities. On the right, you see the profile of who was dying in February and on the, sorry, on the left and on the right, you see what was really the overarching things that made them frail that was causing them to be overly susceptible to COVID. For people without severe comorbidities and people under the age of 60, you can see they weren't dying of COVID and we knew that in February. By March, weekly reports, just like this one, you can download them for yourself, were being produced at the end of every week for a complete summary worldwide. 95% of all deaths worldwide were in our seniors over the age of 60 with severe comorbidities. That means they should have been who we were protecting. This is Canada as of November the 19th. They now produce these reports weekly. So what you can see is Canada is of the 29,000 deaths in Canada, 93.2% of all the deaths in Canada match exactly what we knew last March and February. This is particularly deadly for seniors with severe comorbidities. It is not deadly for others. So in 21 months, 761 Canadians have died of COVID. Most of them had a comorbidity. 761 in 21 months. It works out to about 450. We lose over 500 Canadians to pneumonia every single year under the age of 50. And yet we never close down our country for pneumonia. Here's the results for Quebec. Again, this is uh, updated as of November the 18th. 96.9%, 97% of the deaths in Quebec, seniors over the age of 60 with severe comorbidities. Ontario, similar results, well over 90%, still focusing on severe comorbidities. I won't show you the results for Alberta. What I will show you from Alberta, because they're one of the few provinces that keep up to date every week the comorbidities. 73% basically of the people who've died in, in Alberta had three or more severe comorbidities. And by comorbidities, we know it's, it's things like severe heart disease, severe diabetes, severe cancer that are being treated but barely controlled. All right, three or more. Only 4.5% of the people in Alberta who died of COVID didn't have a pre-existing severe comorbidity and most of them were in our frail seniors. 
The average age of death in Canada from COVID is 82 years old with three comorbidities. Let's put that into perspective. In one year, COVID versus other things. This is what our premiers should have been telling us every night, that COVID simply isn't that deadly. If you're between the age of 20 and 24 years, you have a 20, a 5% greater chance of dying driving to work than you do of dying of COVID. And yet the government didn't take your car away and tell you you had to lock yourself in your house because cars were killing you. Even if you're over the age of 70, heart disease kills twice as many people as COVID even right now. So 21,000 of our deaths could have been avoided. Why? Because 73% of the deaths in Canada are in our long-term care homes. They're not in the community at large. To this day, they are in our long-term care homes. Back in March of 2020, we should have offered quarantine for residents of long-term care homes. And I say offered, you should never force someone to give up their right to live their life. But if they were afraid of dying of COVID, we should have presented a full quarantine option. And I mean, for both the staff and the residents. And we can talk about how that could have been achieved later, but it's not rocket science. We know that in the first wave alone, 81% of the deaths in Canada were in our long-term care homes. And it has continued throughout wave after wave. It is a great shame of Canada in the Organization of Economically Developed Countries, we placed last in protection of our seniors. We could have saved 21,000 of our Canadians, those that were living in those homes, and not sent 9 million Canadians home. The complete workforce in Canada is just under 21 million people. We sent 9 million of them to sit in their homes to protect them from a disease that was not deadly to them. Our constant, we're constantly told by our doctors that we're going to overwhelm our medical system. You hear it every night, even now in this supposed fourth, or if you're in Alberta, fifth wave, that, that our hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. Well, they have never been overwhelmed. And what you're never given is denominators. If you live in Ontario, at the peak, 1,760 acute care beds were filled with COVID patients. What they didn't tell you is there are 22,258 acute care beds in Ontario. 1,700 versus 22,000. But to this day, it's our seniors over the age of 60 with severe comorbidities that are still filling our hospital beds and our ICUs. We should never have stopped other medical procedures. You're also told that if we don't uh, uh, do lockdowns, that our hospitals will be overwhelmed and we'll have to do triage. Well, folks, I put it to you, we're already triaging because people who don't have COVID are told they're not important. Their operations are set to the side. Even for our severe diseases, we know for a fact that we've seen double the heart attacks and deaths from heart attacks because people are staying in their homes for fear of catching COVID at the hospital. It's simply unacceptable. We didn't need to follow what China did. That was a show. 
and probably more for the people with inside China than for the rest of the world, but it worked really well in terrifying the rest of the world. Instead, we sacrificed our seniors and even the Canadian Medical Officer of Health of Canada admitted in an interview after the second wave that we had completely failed our seniors by not offering them protections. But let's talk about the hidden part of what we've done. We knew from the documents produced repeatedly, but last published in September of 2019, that the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions do not significantly stop the spread of a virus like COVID. After the first wave and after each wave, there have been repeated studies done this is one with some of the best infectious disease doctors in the world, Bhattacharya, Ioannidis. These people are the experts in this. They compared lockdown versus non-lockdown countries, and Brian's going to talk to you about some of them later. But the point is, at the end of their studies, comparing similar geography, similar climate, similar urban versus rural dispersion, and comparing them in pairs of countries, they found no significant benefit on case growth. If you don't want one study, here's 35 more collected and put together that our medical officers of health should and definitely have known about, but have continued to use lockdowns knowing they have no effect on the spread of the disease. Let's talk about Canada. This is the seasonal annual infection curve in our country. Back in March, the world declared a pandemic. You see where the viral curve is in countries in the Northern Hemisphere? We declared a lockdown immediately and used non-pharmaceutical interventions that never should have been used. And yet, medical officers of health all across our country, by May 15th, miraculously said the lockdowns hadn't worked for the first month and a half, but suddenly in the middle of May, they'd started to work and it was because we were finally listening and finally locking ourselves down. Folks, it was actually called spring. Every year, by the middle of May, infections drop. We opened our schools September 2020. And by the 15th of October, we were told by our medical officers of health that we had to lock down again for the second wave because the infections were going up exponentially. It's called fall. When did the second wave peak? Miraculously, our lockdowns that never worked in October, never worked in, in, in November, and never worked in December suddenly started to work because we finally took them seriously, just like they do every single year. It had nothing to do with lockdowns. The third wave peaked right when cold season normally peaks. When you see that sudden drop, that's the viral infection curve. And then we go through the cold season in, in April and then it starts to drop. It's nothing more than the seasonal curves. Here's what happened in Quebec, followed that curve almost exactly. Here's what happened in Ontario, followed the curve almost exactly. The other three goals in our pandemic plans minimizing societal disruption, minimizing adverse economic impact and using our resources properly, we completely ignored and completely failed. But let's talk about economic impact because everybody wants to jump down anyone's throat that says money's not important as lives. 
I put it to you that it is exactly as important as lives. Number one, every business that's failed is people. Their lives have been destroyed. But if we don't think that doubling our national debt from 750 billion to 1.3 trillion in less than a year will not have long-term effects on every medical and social program for the next 40 years, we're smoking dope, folks. We have destroyed our potential to do the health-related, social-related, and economic development for our country for at least two decades. We've done massive damage to our social fabric, to everyone's mental health, other severe health conditions. Like I said before, people choosing to die at home from diabetes, heart disease, and cancer because they're more afraid of COVID than the real disease that's killing them. But the one that's worst is what we've done to our children. Children that are between, that are in grades one, elementary school, one to six, those children are going to have irreparable mental health issues their whole life. Junior high, that whole social development that happens when you're in those grades, senior high, preparing for university, uh, uh, trades colleges, or for walking out into any type of job in life. We know from studies long before this pandemic that the loss of one year of education, and we've had three, the loss of one year of education has a three to five year shortening of lifespan and a five to 15% decrease in economic earning for that individual in their life. If we don't have a plan on how we're going to address what we've done to our children, 60 years from now, we'll finally overcome this because they'll die. Four conclusions. Lockdowns didn't save our seniors. A targeted response, like we've always done in a pandemic for those most at risk, probably would have saved half of them. The use of lockdowns did not cause any decrease in the spread of the virus. But lockdowns have caused massive collateral damages that we're going to have to write a detailed recovery plan to overcome all four of them. And who's responsible? Our elected officials with the advice of our MOHs. They used fear. The last thing in my previous life in the Army, plus my life in EMA, the first thing you do in any emergency is you support confidence in government, which is the opposite of fear. You never use fear. The first task you have is to decrease fear. And yet our elected officials chose to use it as the number one tool to demand compliance with lockdowns that never should have been used. How do we get out of it? Eight steps. First of all, we have to produce two plans. We still are in a pandemic. We still need a response plan written and provided to the public, but we need to write a recovery plan that should have been started to be written in March of 2020. And I put it to you in 10 provinces and in three territories, they haven't even started to write it yet. Number two, we still need to protect our seniors. They are still the ones filling our hospitals and they are still the ones dying of COVID even double and triple vaccinated. Number three, we need to make sure that all critical infrastructure is assured and our hospitals, if they haven't built real new surge capacity in our hospitals, they're never going to. They should be fired, they're incompetent. The biggest one, we have to teach the public what they've been taught 
we have to break that cycle. We have to tell them not to fear COVID with real examples and why. And it's got to be done every single night on mainstream media for at least 30 days. We handed the microphone to the medical officers of health now for 20 months creating fear. We have to step it back and we have to have the premiers doing it every single night. We have to say we will never use lockdowns again and mean it. We have to get rid of the ridiculous social distancing rules. We have to make sure we guarantee our schools will never close again. And anyone who wants to go to work should be at work. And I say continue to vaccinate as vaccines become available for the current strain of COVID, but we can have a whole talk about the current vaccines. But the big red on the bottom is, if we don't write a detailed recovery plan to overcome the societal impact, the mental health impact, the destruction of our children's education, the other severe illnesses and disease which are on rampant increase at this time, and the massive destruction of the economy of our country, if we don't write a plan with all five of those completely addressed in it, we will simply continue to see the collateral deaths and damage for the next 60 years. This was drawn by a 15-year-old girl in the middle of the second wave and to me summarizes exactly what was done in our country. It was sent to me. In the back, you see the body bags of all the seniors from the long-term care homes in stacks, 27,000. We see our schools and our children's education burning to the ground. We see our mental health casualties growing every day, and our other severe illnesses, cancer, diabetes, heart attack, dementia, completely ignored by our medical officers of health who are responsible for all of public health, not just COVID. And our societal impacts, things like spousal abuse, child abuse, are, have doubled in the last year, and our economy burning to the ground, with the premier hiding behind a medical officer of health saying, we must protect our healthcare system. I wanna leave you with two thoughts. Here's the references. You'll get a copy of this presentation. The first is the paper I wrote, which basically is 130 pages on how we hold criminally negligent, and by that I mean causing death, our premiers and our MOH. I published it in July of 2021. Lawyers are coming to me now and are starting to base cases on it because I tried to work behind the scenes for a whole year trying to get at least one premier to listen and to let me help them walk back what they were doing. They refused, I published this paper. The second is one that I produced with the doctor. In fact, the doctor did 99% of it and he will show you in no uncertain terms how COVID compares to other diseases and what's happened in our country in the last 20 months. And the final reference at the bottom is a site that was built by colleagues of mine in Ontario uh, to bring together all of the research in Canada. This is a Canadian focused research site for people who are trying to oppose what's being done in our country. So two thoughts, and I know we'll get into vaccines later. I don't touch them normally because I'm not a doctor. I simply show you evidence. And the evidence, this is Alberta as of last Friday. 38% of the new cases in Alberta are in fully vaccinated people. 
These vaccines do not stop you catching COVID. These vaccines do not stop you transmitting COVID. These vaccines do not stop you dying from COVID. In seniors over the age of 60 with severe multiple comorbidities, they do decrease the death from COVID by three to four times. So for our most vulnerable, they make a lot of sense. Just like Brian said, he chose for, for his choice. Three to four times less deaths are happening in our seniors with severe comorbidities. But for everyone else, they make no sense whatsoever. Second thought. Everyone seems to think that lockdowns were the only possible option. It's simply not true. The mainstream media don't tell you about people that didn't do it. And Brian's gonna talk about it in some detail in the next minute. But what you see here is a cartoon that was produced at the start of the third wave when Delta hit Britain. And it's plan A is lockdown, plan B is lockdown. There is no other plan, right? Boris Johnson, he, he simply had no other choice except for the giant elephant in the room. And that elephant is holding a little flag and it's Sweden. Here's Sweden. They didn't wear face masks. In fact, we're told distinctly by Dr. Tegnell not to, all the way through, every wave. He explained why it makes no sense to wear masks, exactly like the non-pharmaceutical document from September 2019. Other than in a hospital setting, when actually diagnosed in the hospital setting with a severe illness. They didn't wear masks. They never closed their schools. They never ordered any business to close. And in terms of social distancing, he recommended one meter if and when possible, period. What you see is they killed a lot of seniors. Their long-term care homes were as bad as ours. But if you compare the province of Quebec with 8.5 million residents and Sweden with 10 million residents and do it on a per capita basis, Sweden did better than Quebec, who had lockdowns, curfews, the whole schmear. The reason they didn't quarantine their long-term care homes is because of laws that exist within Sweden. But if you look at the young people in Sweden, you would have thought that without lockdowns, they'd all be dead, right? They're not. This is what Sweden looks like today. They didn't have a Delta bump because natural immunity is way better than vaccine immunity. And they have achieved it long before the Delta wave hit them. And so what you see in May is that little tiny hump that it levels out very fast. And if you look at where they're at today, you would wonder why we didn't do what Sweden did, which is exactly what every one of our pandemic influenza plans in 10 out of 10 provinces and three out of three territories said to do is what Sweden did. And with that, I will unshare my screen and pass it back to Brian. And then we'll okay. open for questions. Well, that's a good segue, uh, David, because I, I want to, uh, to talk briefly, and I won't go into a lot of detail here, but I want to talk briefly about four jurisdictions that did things differently than we did. Uh, I don't pretend, I don't say that they uh, did things perfectly, because as David pointed out, for instance, with Sweden, they made um, the same mistakes that we did with our nursing home population. Some places did far better. 
But um, I think all of these places have um, uh, something to, uh, to offer us uh, in terms of uh, uh, where we should go from here and what we should do uh, when we get the next pandemic. Uh, it, it is becoming increasingly clear to everybody that we're going to be dealing with this virus or mutations of this virus for a long time, um, perhaps forever. And it's also becoming uh, obvious that we have to pre prepare ourselves better in case another uh, uh, virus uh, uh, comes along and that may well be the case. So Sweden, so David's already given you some of the, uh, uh, the numbers, but what I'll say about Sweden is this, it was portrayed in the news media as, as, uh, as, an, uh, as the, the radical, the place that was not doing what everybody else did, the place that was doing something novel, experimental, uh, quite crazy. Well, in actual fact, uh, Sweden was the old fashioned one. Sweden was doing what David Redman has just described. It was sticking to the uh, pandemic script that had been used for many, many years. I did a study of the uh, um, pandemics in the modern area, at least, uh, era, at least, uh, 1957 and, and 1968. And uh, I don't remember the 57 pandemic, but millions of people died. It was a pandemic. Um, uh, I do remember 1968 because, that, <laughs> interestingly, that was the year that's, that Woodstock occurred. And uh, I don't remember anything about the pandemic at all, but I certainly do remember the pictures of Woodstock. I wasn't there, unfortunately, but I do remember and everybody was all together, et cetera. So what does that, what does that tell us? I think that says that, well, life was pretty well uh, normal. They kept life uh, uh, fairly normal, even during times of pandemic. And certainly many elderly people died and, and uh, uh, people with compromised uh, immune systems and otherwise frail people. But life went on fairly normally. And when I looked at what the leaders, world leaders actually did say at that time, um, that's exactly what they did. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower was the leader of the United States, which was the, uh, especially going out of the war years, uh, by far the, the, the leading nation in the world. Um, and what did he decide to do? He said, well, the first thing we have to do is um, uh, keep life as normal as possible. We can't panic the population. We have to keep, uh, keep life going. We have to keep the economy strong. And that only makes sense because you don't know what's around the corner. There might be other disasters. You have to keep your hospital system strong. And the only way you can do that is by keeping your economy strong. So what they did is they did sensible things like trying to protect the vulnerable population, which is always the frail and elderly uh, uh, segment of the population. They tried to do that as well as they could. But at the same time, they did not uh, go into large scale uh, school closures or business closures or anything like that. Same thing with 1968. As I say, that's the year of Woodstock. And uh, uh, most people don't even remember that there was a pandemic that killed uh, something like 4 million people worldwide uh, and, and during that, that year. But in any event, that is basically what Sweden did. So Sweden is being criticized as being the radical and the, uh, uh, the non-conformist, but in actual fact, they were just the old fashioned ones. 
What the Swedish leaders did, uh, Anders Tegnell, I believe, deserves the Nobel Prize, uh, is he said, well, look, let's not overreact. Let's not get carried away. Maybe we're, we're going to have to take all sorts of uh, strong measures here, but let's let's see what, what happens. So for instance, as David mentioned, they never did close their schools. From one to 15, schools were never closed. And what was the result? Well, they have something like 1.8 million school children. How many deaths did they have among school children? Zero. They had zero school, uh, school children deaths. And, how, uh, and as far as teachers getting sick from the students, well, that was about at the same rate as grocery uh, store clerks uh, get sick selling grocery groceries to, uh, to teachers. In other words, it was, not, it was a non-event. Keeping the schools open made perfect sense and as a matter of fact, the, the, the two regrets that the Swedish um, uh, czar uh, climate or uh, medical care uh, czar there had is this. He said he never should have closed high schools. They did close high schools for the over 15s. He said that was totally unnecessary. And he also regretted the nursing home death, uh, deaths because they could have done a lot more. But what I'm saying is that Sweden was, was really the um, was not the nonconformist. Sweden was following the normal pattern that David has outlined for pandemics. It was the other nations that somehow got panicked into adopting a completely untested lockdown model that had never before been used in human history. As a matter of fact, and this is almost scary, the lockdown model itself is based on the, uh, a school paper done by a 16-year-old. Uh, nothing against that 16 year old. She's obviously a very clever girl. But the fact that they would actually base uh, uh, an approach that had never been tried before in human history on a high school paper is rather frightening. And I believe that what happened is once they were, once the leaders were committed to that program, they did not know how to get out. They were sort of captured by their, uh, by their, their audience. And then they started playing to the most risk averse people in the crowd. And I think that's what's happening today. But in, in, any, in any event, check your numbers on Sweden. Um, death numbers are uh, say the European average. Um, their economy has been open for a long time. As a matter of fact, the rest of Scandinavia is doing what Sweden did all along, and they're just treating this as if it was a uh, yes. There's a there's a virus, and it's very dangerous for certain portions of the population. But we have to learn to live with the virus. That's their philosophy, and that's what they're doing. So their schools are open in the normal way. The little kids don't have to wear, wear masks or go out in cohorts or do anything unusual. Uh, businesses are open in the normal way, and life returned to normal long ago in, in Scandinavia. There will be other surges. This, the, the very mutations of this virus are going to be coming back for a long time. But in any, in any event, check your numbers on Sweden, and I think you'll find that uh, um, in, in uh, at least compared to, to the kind of life we are living here in lockdown Canada, they're doing pretty well. The next jurisdiction I'll go to is, is Florida. Um, Florida um, did lock down, but then came out of it very, very quickly. And they just decided, no, they were going to learn to live with the virus. 
The only state in the United States, by the way, that never locked down at all is uh, South Dakota. And you can check your numbers for them as well. And you'll, I think you'll find that, well, in terms of death numbers, they're somewhere around the average. But again, life has been pretty normal in, in, in states like that. So uh, Florida respects the right of the individual to make their own individual health choices. They are uh, opposed to the idea of forcing people to uh, get vaccinated if they don't want to get vaccinated, for instance. And if you check their vaccination numbers, you'll find that it's about the, the same as, uh, as other states. They've done, um, uh, they've, uh, they've managed to avoid so many of the socially divisive policies that Canada has, has adopted. Briefly, the next uh, uh, place I'll look at is a real odd place. It's Belarus. And the reason I mention it, and it's a, I really don't know anything about Belarus, but um, it is led by a very unusual uh, leader who regarded the whole uh, virus as a joke. He called it corona psychosis, and I don't re recommend this at all. But what I'm telling you is that the, the leader of, of Belarus basically said to his citizens, I don't care about this, you're all on your own. Well, how did that work out? And again, check your numbers. Death numbers are no more than in the surrounding states. What happened? People took their own um, measures. Um, elderly people uh, tended to uh, when the infections were high, tended to stay home. The younger people went to the, uh, um, uh, you know, went out to the bars and that sort of thing. And and things kind of kind of worked out. And after all, we're dealing with a virus, and David has mentioned this. We're dealing with a virus that is something like a thousand or even many thousands of times more deadly for an elderly person with comorbidities than it is for a child. And how often do you hear that message from our government? Uh, absolutely never. Um, so in any event, people um, figured it out and uh, uh, Belarus did as well as any of their other, uh, their other neighbors. But now I'll go to the most unusual example when I picked, and that's the Amish people in Pennsylvania. There's an excellent um, YouTube uh, documentary on this, by the way, by Cheryl Atkinson, who's one of our most courageous reporters. What did they do? They did nothing. Uh, they, uh, the Amish, and I, I don't know, I don't have to go into a description, they're a type of Mennonite, um, uh, and they live a very simple life, and they, they uh, use uh, horse and bu uh, buggy, etc. They live a very simple farming life. They decided at an early stage that they were not going to do any of the lockdown uh, things at all. They go to church, they even drink from the same cup, and, and, uh, um, Basically what happened, it's this, and you can, you can again, go to Professor Google, and, and this is what he will tell you, I believe. Um, yes, they, they all got sick, or not all got sick. Many of them got COVID. And yes, some of the, uh, the really frail people died as they did everywhere else. But the Amish basically moved, moved past this, and they, didn't, they don't get vaccinated. And I'm not, I'm not recommending what they're doing, but I'm just telling you that what they're demonstrating is the natural course of this virus, which I believe is pretty well the natural course of every virus that human beings have lived with for the past million years. You get a virus and um, 
uh, people get um, infected, some people get very sick, some people don't get sick, but um, people's immune systems respond and after a, a, a certain period of time um, uh, adjust and, uh, uh, and uh, with the Amish, at least that's, that's what their claim is, they have reached a stage of uh, herd immunity and uh, they are not, um, uh, they're really not bothered by the, uh, 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 the disease at all. I'm sure that there will be other mutations in the future that probably will uh, maybe um, get past their, their immunity, but uh, they're not, um, simply not prepared to completely change their way of life to respond to a, uh, uh, to a virus. So those are the four examples I wanted to give and uh, I'm not going to, to go on uh, too long about this. I'm going to turn it back over to David. But I am suggesting that we have gone a little crazy on um, dealing with this particular virus. Yes, it's a new virus. And uh, obviously, it can be very deadly with certain groups. But people have lived with viruses for a very long time. And... Uh, um, viruses uh, come and then uh, viruses recede. So I suspect that what we're going to be doing, and I'm not a doctor, I don't know, but I suspect that what we're going to be doing is living with uh, mutations of this virus uh, for the rest of our lives. And probably most of us are going to get, uh, get it at, at some point. But I'm just going to repeat David's message that I really don't think that the average healthy person has to fear for his life, has to stop living their life, has to stop seeing their, their families and grandchildren and, 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 and shut everything down because of a virus. Certainly the uh, very vulnerable people, we have to protect them and we have to do everything we can to protect them. But surely we have to start learning to live with this virus at, at some point. David, I'll turn it back to you. Actually, Sylvain, are you there? Sylvain was going to run the questions for us, if he could. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I think he's <laughs> off again. He's he's coming in and out. I guess he's getting some calls. Um, no worries. So, so folks, um, if you can um, uh, simply indicate if you have a... a, a don't even bother indicating. Turn your mic off and ask your question. We'll try not to speak over each other. Well, we have a, a we can have people raise their hands. That'll make okay. it a little bit easier. Maria, um, can you run that for us then? Uh, sure, for sure. So there's uh, Sadaf. You're up first. Yes. Hello there. Thank you. Um, can everyone hear me? I can, Sadaf. Okay. Thank you kindly. I have a new mic. I just wanted to make sure, um, uh, Colonel and, and Judge Geisbrecht, uh, Colonel Redmond, I want to thank you for your excellent presentations. The problem that I'm finding, and I've attended many Zoom calls, is that there's a COVID myopia where we're talking endlessly about the virus and not this incessant fear campaign and the destruction of our economy uh, and of, of children's lives and so on and so forth. And I'm so grateful that the two of you have addressed that. 
Um, I want to just tell you a little bit about my background. I'm a non-practicing MD. Um, and as many people here, I, I've done a lot of research uh, since this episode started. Uh, and I want to bring a couple of things up that I think are very important for context when we discuss COVID. Number one, uh, never before were death coding guidelines changed for any previous pandemics. So with COVID, the world, as you're aware, the World Health Organization changed the uh, guidelines for death coding compared to guidelines for influenza pneumonia of previous years. As a result, according to Dr. Uh, James Lyons Weiler's uh, Institute, IPAC, his analysis of US data, he, uh, they concluded a 1600% inflation of death stats. Um, and as you may be aware, recently the Italian government has downgraded their COVID deaths from 130,000 to 3,700 and some deaths. The reason why I'm bringing this up is that uh, Dr. Denis Rancourt, you're probably familiar with him, he did a report on all cause mortality data in Canada, 2020. And he discovered that there was no excess mortality outside of normal trends. So if we, we have to consider that when we're discussing COVID, unfortunately, COVID mirrors natural mortality, which is why the median age is on par with COVID deaths. So when we say that COVID is deadly for the elderly, I would say that it's particularly deadly for elderly in long-term care facilities. And the reason for that is that the first wave, what we're calling the first COVID wave was actually a manufactured wave. And it was a result of the draconian lockdown of these facilities. Uh, you know, people were getting served, they didn't show up for work and they were terrified. And they isolated the one quality control factor of these uh, facilities and that is the family members. So as a result, what Dr. Denis Rancourt discovered, and he called it the sharp COVID peak, is a, is a sharp peak of deaths that followed a week after, a week and a half after the declaration of the pandemic by the WHO. And it happened simultaneously in every part of the world where there was a draconian lockdown. And he therefore rightfully concluded that that is an unnatural peak. Viral respiratory waves as the ones that you rightfully pointed out to us over previous years, they don't look like that. Uh, and this was a signature of, of state-sanctioned homicide of vulnerable elderly, particularly over 80. I per and, and I think as we're all familiar with the leaked military report uh, supports this as well. I personally spoke with a woman who during that first wave was working in a care home in uh, Ontario. And she said that nobody showed up for work. It was her and one head nurse. She had to do triage and all she could do is give water to these people. Uh, that were unfortunately bedridden and heavily dependent on care. So I think that's very important uh, point to address. If we did have a lethal, um, let's say virus, that's especially lethal to the elderly, we would have seen that in the elderly outside of nursing homes. And that would have been evident in the all-cause mortality data, which is was, wasn't. And also we have to recall that flu and pneumonia disappeared in Canada in 2020. And not that long ago, the CDC and FDA um, also admitted that these PCR assays, which I won't get into because it'll take too much time, but they do not distinguish between uh, what we're calling COVID and influenza pneumonia. So there are many, many aspects to consider, but I just wanted to bring that to the conversation. Thank you, gentlemen.
If I, if I can just add uh, a couple of things. One of the things that I agree uh, almost <laughs> completely with what you've said. So let's talk first of all about number one, we should never have locked down and we should never have made such fear that staff wouldn't show up for long-term care homes. But if we had done what we should have done in the last week of February and the first week of March, when, when we did counterterrorism, what you do is you bring all the experts into the room. And by all the experts, I mean across every one of those tubes, not the health tube. They're a part of it. So let's talk about long-term care homes and let's talk about isolation. You should have been able to offer to those that were worried with severe comorbidities in our long-term care homes, and for those living at large, a similar to long-term care home solution, where the staff would have been put into an isolation in a government provided facility, knowing they were protected then, and they could have moved and done as many long-term care homes as they wanted to in a day, because they were isolated. We call it the Fort McMurray model in Ontario. You put them for 30 days into a shift, they do their shift, and at the end of 30 days, they go home to their family. In a second isolation unit, you bring them back 14 days before they start their next shift. So they've had 16 days fully paid at home, and then you put them back into the, the isolation unit and bust them back and forth. You do not isolate the residents of a long-term care home in their rooms. You let them live their lives exactly like they did before. And instead of allowing family to come in, unless the family chose to, you, you could put them in the isolation as well. But what you do is you, you have them live their lives exactly as they did before. You bring in extra entertainers into the quarantine system as well and move them between the long-term care. You bring young people with, with uh, expertise in, in media that can come in and help the seniors see their families that way only for the people that chose. So that, that, that's one part of it. So you don't have lack of staff in your long-term care homes. You in fact have more staff. If you do that in February and March before the pandemic starts, you build that plan and you can do it. It's not hard. We did it in counterterrorism. And what you'll find is you have massive of volunteers that want to be part of that plan. The second piece you're talking about in terms of, of the statistics, we know for a fact that in every province in Canada, the coroners have been directed by the College of Surgeons and Physicians or Physicians and Surgeons, depending on your province, to classify as a COVID death, either someone who died of COVID or someone who COVID may have contributed to their death. And so you're not listing them as a heart attack, even though they died on the table, having a heart attack surgery, if they tested positive for COVID, they're called COVID. And that happened across every one of the other severe comorbidities. So why do you see a drop in the others and all these extra COVID deaths? That was a direction from the College of Surgeons and Physicians starting back in May of 2020 on how to classify the deaths. So we know that numbers are inflated and we know that for a fact and you can go Google it for yourself. Just type in uh, how is a COVID death defined and you'll get that definition. Sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll pick up on that too. Uh, and, and some of you, know, Marin made, uh, you know, there are some fa fascinating references and I don't uh, uh, intend to, or I don't uh, um, pretend to know uh, about this, but I have read some articles about the difference in COVID deaths in, in nursing homes uh, between jurisdictions, 
that were uh, say friendly to euthanasia laws and uh, jurisdictions that were not friendly and <laughs> they're they're rather they're rather frightening because the uh, the uh, the uh, jurisdictions where euthanasia was uh, was more acceptable the deaths were, were far higher but i don't pretend to to have uh, have any expertise in that area so i leave it two questions that came up that i saw a flash down domestic uh, travel um um uh, passports, vaccine passports for domestic travel, and I think that this is this is quite pernicious. Uh, the international travel is a little different because you have the uh, the right of the uh, uh, different countries to make their own uh, laws and um, uh, airline policy, etc. But for domestic uh, travel, I think they're going to run into huge problems because right now. Uh, just to, to give some examples, uh, um, um, say a, a, a parent who, uh, uh, or a, a, a person whose relative is dying in another province is effectively going to be able to, to travel to that province. Uh, a person who might need some medical treatment is going to be prevented because they don't have their vaccination to travel to another province. And I think that they just made a, 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 a huge mistake in doing this. I think it's gonna cost all sorts of of, 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 uh, of, of big problems. Trudeau said um, uh, initially, and he was correct, he's, when he was asked about vaccine passports, he said, no, that's, that's not, not a good idea. That's what he said. And uh, he, had, uh, he had advice from his uh, senior people and they told him how divisive uh, these mandates were going to be and, and uh, and how, uh, in actual fact, you're not even going to get that many more people vaccinated by doing it. You're, you're simply going to turn some people, if the government says uh, you have to do something, a certain segment is going to say, no, I'm not going to. So in, in effect, they're not even going to increase vaccination rates all that much by uh, making all of these, these orders and these mandates. But I believe what happened, and perhaps uh, this I'll be accused of a, a conspiracy theory here, but I, I believe what happened at a certain stage, the liberals realized that they could use the um, uh, vaccine mandate uh, uh, idea as, uh, as a, um, an election tool uh, to further their popularity. And I think basically they won an election on it. On it. And they knew that they were risking uh, tremendous societal division. And I think we're only seeing the beginning of it now. But, and I, so I think they acted absolutely irresponsibly where they're setting neighbor against neighbor. Uh, and uh, uh, um, uh, so I think they're going to pay, we were all, the country is going to pay a, uh, pay a price, but, um, uh, but they did it. And uh, I, I think it's it, it's absolutely wrong to try to prevent, and they are preventing uh, people from traveling one, uh, from one part of the country to the other. The other thing I saw mentioned was just sort of the uh, um, how did the government spend its money? Uh, and I think again, I have huge problems with what they did because David has referred to the quarantining of, of nursing homes. Well, that would have been a natural because we knew right at the beginning of this pandemic that the uh, the uh, the elderly and frail were uh, were were going to be the ones who were dying in, in great numbers, and uh, I, they should have spent whatever it took to properly quarantine the hotels, uh, the hospitals, the uh, sorry, the nursing homes, personal care homes, 
The other thing that they obviously should have done was to um, build up the hospital capacity. Canada, all of the provinces have very poor hospital capacity. We have uh, some strengths in our healthcare system, but hospital capacity is not one of them. For the past few decades, we've whittled it down to the point where even a bad flu year is going to put the hospital system in great jeopardy. So the very first thing they should have done was to um, uh, is, is to hand the provinces the uh, um, the funds that the provinces would need in order to uh, to properly buttress the hospital system, so that the when the surges came and there's going to be more surges, the hospital systems uh, uh, could respond. I feel very badly for the healthcare people, the doctors and nurses and everybody else who are working so hard in a, an inadequate system. That's all we're always at the at the stage of uh, uh, almost uh, collapsing. So they didn't do that, but what did they do? They spent an absolute fortune on income replacement. And, and just consider this for a minute. Canada spent more per capita than any country in the world on income replacement. They sent their young people home to sit in their, in their houses, in their basements. Some of those young people were placed on uh, um, pogi on, um, uh, you know, the CERB payments, and the lucky ones got to keep their salary and Zoom back and forth. But I mean, just, just consider the absurdity of this. Let's say you have a 60-year-old truck driver with some, let's say he's slightly overweight, he's got some comorbidities, he's out driving his truck, uh, transporting groceries back and forth or whatever, and then you've got a 25-year-old perfectly healthy person sitting in their basement playing video games or else zooming back and forth. I mean, it makes no sense. That truck driver was, is at hundreds of times more danger of, uh, of dying or being hospitalized than those young, healthy people. So what they actually did was, was quite insane. They not only jeopardized the country's future and uh, our economic, uh, um, the economic consequences are huge, but it also made absolutely no sense. They first of all closed down the schools so that little kids who have practically no uh, problem with COVID went home and uh, we're going to have huge problems with that. And then they sent their 25-year-olds home <laughs> to, to get checks and become used to getting government, uh, you know, getting government money. And that's a problem in itself. And at the same time, they, they made uh, uh, poor people. Basically, that's what they did. The working poor and the working class are out there risking uh, getting COVID and, 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 and that sort of thing, while the Zoomer class is, is able to stay in their pajamas and Zoom back and forth like we're doing now. So th the whole thing was absolutely nonsensical, but you're not going to get any politician in Canada to admit that they've made a horrible mistake because they, uh, <laughs> they're going to claim, as soon as the numbers start going down, as David said, they're gonna start claiming success for their wonderful policies not noticing that their numbers are going down in summer and coming back up in, in, in fall. And when, it, when the numbers come back in fall, they're gonna blame you people for, for not properly social distancing or whatever. So anyways, I'll stop at that point. I'll give it back to David. Um, okay, I'm gonna uh, interrupt for a minute. So I can read these questions. Um, and how about we, we start with that? Then there's a few people who, who still, two people right now who have questions. Yeah, uh, if you don't mind uh, for that. 
Um, so the first question, are federal employees legally entitled to receive the unemployment insurance even after being put on leave without pay because of the mandatory vaccine situation? Not an expert on it, but certainly from what I've seen in the recent publications, no, they're not. Uh, COVID, uh, if you refuse to uh, either disclose or have the vaccine and you're let go because you didn't, uh, the ruling, current ruling from the federal government is that you're not eligible for EI, according to the newspapers. Okay, um, then the second question is about, um, it's French, I'm gonna, my French is not so good, but I'll, I'll translate this. So after two vaccines, um, if you've taken, you've taken them um, for fear, uh, for, forcefully because you've, you're afraid of losing your job, um, what can you do um, to not take the third, the booster? Um, and how can we fight against this uh, so that all of this stops? Because it, it, there keep, I think the question means, you know, there's more and more boosters coming and we have to stop this. So well, I'll, I'll jump in on that okay. one because I think that's, that's, uh, that's definitely the question because right now, uh, if you want to have your uh, immunization card, at least in my province, you have to get your uh, uh, two shots and uh, then you have to wait your two weeks and then they send you a card. Uh, okay, that's fine. Um, then uh, the boosters are going to be talked about very, uh, very soon. They already are. People are already getting their, their boosters. And we know that the vaccination wanes after uh, a few months now. And we know that uh, vaccinated people still um, spread the virus and, uh, and get the virus. So I think the next step is going to be the booster. So the immunization card, I believe, uh, I'm just reading the future here, but it's going to say, oh, no, you can't have your, uh, your immunization card unless you get your, your booster. And uh, it's also probably going to say, no, you can't travel with your kids, even your five to 11 year old kids, unless you can provide proof of vaccination for those kids. And I'm not certain that it's going to end with the five-year-olds. I wouldn't be surprised if it's going to be uh, the one to fives. And I, I, I this, and this may be preposterous to say, but I'm not sure that some people wouldn't want in utero the vaccination. I mean, <laughs> that sounds pretty extreme, but what we've seen is the goalposts continuing to, to shift. So I think this is a very good question because my guess is unless there is no pushback, um, uh, yes, uh, your immunization card is definitely going to say if you want to go into the pizza place for a pizza, you're going to have to show something with three shots, and then it's going to be four shots and it's five shots or, or whatever. So uh, exactly how we get out of this, I, I think we're going to have to uh, tell our re elected representatives that we've, we've had enough. I've certainly had enough. I'm not going to get a booster and I'm not going to, uh, uh, I'm not going to, uh, um, in order to get an immunization card that says I've had three shots, I'm not going to do it, but everybody's going to have to make up their, uh, their minds about, uh, um, uh, about this themselves. And I believe that it's going to be the 
next group that's coming along, the five to 11s, I think this is going to really change the, uh, the discussion because we have a very many parents uh, who do not believe that's um, uh, scientifically sound to have their uh, little children vaccinated. And uh, when they are forced to do so, and that's already happening because you're going to get, I mentioned the 12 year old who's told that, well, you can't come to the birthday party because you don't have a vaccination. Well, that's going to happen. As soon as they open it up for the five to 11s, that's going to happen. Or maybe it did, David. So I think the essence of the question is how do we stop it? And folks, my answer to, to that question is, is identical for a number of the questions that follow on the list that was sent to us. Only one person per province can stop what we're doing. It's a premier. Only a premier can stop what's happening in your province. The only way to stop that premier and make them change is to show that the public at large doesn't want to continue. And that's why I do the presentation is to arm people like you with facts and, and you already know them, you're a pretty literate group, but the, the only way to, to get a premier and it has to be the premier to change direction is for them to understand that they're going to lose. They're going to lose the next election. They're going to lose something of importance. And so it's got to be a relentless campaign against the MLAs or MPPs. It's gotta be a relentless campaign directly at the premier's office constant phone calls. And, and I encourage phone calls, not letters. Letters don't work. But in overwhelming the switchboards. You saw what happened in both Quebec and Ontario and now in Alberta when the doctors and nurses said that they will not be vaccinated and be forced to be vaccinated. Legault and Ford backed up, right? They couldn't lose 22,000 healthcare workers in Quebec and 17,000 in Ontario, so they removed the requirement. The only way to get out of this response and to stop lockdowns and to stop vaccine passports is to move a premier to say lockdowns don't work, coronavirus isn't deadly, and we're going to walk our way out of this. You, it has to be a premier. It can't, and, and so how do you convince them? Large <laughs> gatherings? Absolutely. Um, um, a, a relentless campaign. But remember, the focus is your premier. It, it's, it, don't go after the medical officer of health. The premier is the only person that can stop this province by province by province. And until they realize <laughs> they have to, they won't. Okay, um, the next, thank you for that. Uh, the next question is in a message from the ACDS. Um, he states, CAF members are now being directed to be fully vaccinated unless they cannot be vaccinated due to a certified medical contraindication, religious grounds, or any other prohibited grounds of discrimination as defined in the Canadian Human Rights Act. I am not familiar with the Human Rights Act, but are there any sections that can accept me from the vaccine and allow me to keep working without discrimination? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in on that one because as a past commanding officer, uh, I know what the rules were up till 1999. Canadian Forces members are different than the public. Let's be very clear. 
you give up your charter rights and freedoms when you join the armed forces to some degree. And by that, I mean, uh, a civilian can't be ordered to run at a machine gun. Okay. But as a CO, I could order a soldier to run at a machine gun, knowing certain death. Vaccines in the military are a statement of fact. The Canadian Forces has to be ready to deploy anywhere in the world at any moment in time. I have, I don't know if you can see it, that's mine from my military service and it's maintained to this day. I carried that from 1972 on and I had more vaccines pumped into my body than Carter has little liver pills. I was inoculated for every horrible disease known to man because I had to be ready to go at a moment's notice anywhere in the world. And those countries define what's required to go into that country. But the real essence of the reason for the Canadian forces is, as a CO, I couldn't afford to have one third of my soldiers suddenly fall ill from something, all right, in the middle of a campaign. And so you don't have a right to say no as a vaccine. It's a voluntary force. If you choose not to, uh, follow that mandate. And uh, the commanding officer is the first one in line. He walks in and gets whacked with whatever is the vaccine of the day. Then you have the right to choose not to be a member of the Canadian Forces. And that's the logic behind it. Now, is there a place in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada for the Canadian military to opt out? I don't believe so. I'm not an expert on the National Defence Act, but I would put it to you. I've had about uh, 20 soldiers come to me because they find me uh, through different systems and and that's the, the the piece i give them back i'm sorry but you're a member of the canadian forces what do i think about international and domestic vaccine passports i think domestic vaccine passports are illegal i believe ordering anyone other than a canadian forces member to get the vaccine in canada is illegal and once the word pandemic is removed from the world once who says the pandemic is over Vaccine passports, domestic vaccine passports are illegal. This isn't. This will remain legal. And if you want to go on a cruise and go to China, you have to carry this with you or something like this, saying that you've met Chinese vaccine requirements and that there is no need for a new document. This is the document. But in terms of the Canadian Forces members, you got to realize the rules are different as a Canadian Forces member than for the public of Canada. Right, thank you. Uh, the next question, how could we get the contract that Mr. Trudeau signed with, uh, far, with Pfizer Pharmaceutical for COVID-19 experimental drug and was ivermectin ever mentioned to get out of the Canadian market as a treatment so they could pull off an emergency mandated experimental drug vaccine on all Canadians? So let's split it into two parts. Let's talk about treatment first and we'll talk about uh, the other. Ivermectin, all the different treatments. One of the things as an emergency manager, if you read my paper, the link is there. One of the things I discuss right at the very front, the, one of the first things you do is you establish an intelligence network that looks worldwide for treatment protocols that are evolving. You establish tests and protocols in Canada. You test out whatever you can gather from the whole world and see whether or not treatment is logical and possible using all the different types of things that come out. That's how we dealt with AIDS, folks. Uh, we looked at everything in the whole world and, and they cobbled together and it was never one thing. It was a, a collage that ultimately uh, made it a thing of the past, right? And that's exactly what we should have been doing in February, March, April, May in the first wave is trying to gather from the world. We did exactly the opposite. 
we almost turned our back completely on treatment and said not to use it. And in fact, we've got to the point now where Health Canada has said things like a doctor who uses ivermectin will lose their license to practice. And yet we know in India that India has less than half, they have two fifths of the deaths per capita of Canada and never locked down. And the reason they did it is they did an overwhelming uh, experimental treatment program. They tried everything because they knew they couldn't lock down. So we need to look at treatment as a way of dealing with COVID forever and stop this ridiculous focus on a vaccine. Uh, and, and so from my point of view, that the, the whole idea of treatment in Canada is way behind many of our other allies and democratic countries. It, it's just been neglected. And I think part of the, the problem or a big part of the problem is just the, the, the messaging that we, we have got from the government. We've talked about messaging before in relation to, to uh, um, the risk to the population. Um, what did they tell us here in Canada? Well, they, they said, uh, or at least implied that the risk to everybody was equal from this, this virus. And that was never true. And we knew that the risk is, is, is hundreds, maybe even thousands of times greater for the uh, people at one extreme, the 85 year old with comorbidities than the, the healthy uh, child. And yet the message we continued to get from the government was, um, well, everybody has to um, um, hide in their basements. Everybody has to do with certain things. Well, that was a bad message because the message should have stressed the different degrees of risk to people. When you see a 20 year old out on their bicycle riding a you know, riding a bicycle with their mask on, you know that that person has been scared witless. Uh, and that's by a false message. And you see this every day. So many of our fellow citizens are uh, even young, healthy people are actually believe that if they get COVID, they're going to die. They're not. They're not. They're, they're, their chances of dying, if you're a 20-year-old healthy person, it's about the same as going outside and getting struck dead by lightning. I mean, it's, it could happen, but I mean, it's, it's, it's so very unlikely that it's statistically uh, negligible. And similarly with their vaccination message, they're so desperate to get everybody vaccinated that their message was actually very distorted. And, uh, uh, I really blame the public health officers and the government officials for the very bad messaging. Uh, I referred to Sweden. Um, and now that's a country that uh, prides itself on, on giving the citizens the straight goods. So they told people the truth. Um, they didn't try to manipulate people into doing any particular thing. And um, uh, overall, it's very successful because they were trusted. And there are many other countries as well. I said, Florida, well, that, that's what they're doing there. They're giving people honest advice. And they're saying, look, uh, these, are the, these are the statistics. These are the, uh, uh, th this is the information we have. We're not trying to trick you into doing any particular thing. That's not what's happened in Canada. The message has right from the start has been a manipulative one.
uh, even to the extent of saying uh, when we were talking about masks and when our public health officials said, no, don't wear masks. And then they later told us, well, we were just fooling because we didn't want you to go and buy up all the masks on the shelf. Well, that's a, that's a lie. It may be a noble lie, but it's just as damages and damaging as any other lie. So you get the public health officials that that are simply not listened to. The, the worst example that I, uh, and this always stays with me, we were being told, well, you can't go to any type of gathering. You can't go to a, uh, any, any type of gathering of uh, anti-lockdown rally or a motorcycle rally or music or whatever. And then the, the George Floyd protests started, if you remember that. And then there were thousands of people in the streets. You even had the prime minister, uh, you know, in the middle of a, of a, a busy park at a protest. And then they said, that's okay. We didn't have one provincial premier who laid a single charge against any of those people. And yet the next day they were out charging Christian pastors for having church services, etc. Well, what are you doing? You're, you're ruining, you're, you're simply ruining your reputation. People are not going to believe you a, at all. If your message is just a political one, uh, then you're not going to be believed. And I believe that's the, the messaging is one of the worst uh, uh, the worst things that our uh, that our Canadian government uh, uh, did. I don't. I don't know, David, if you believe in, uh, agree with that or not. Can I just add one last piece? When, when folks, you're all going to get a copy of the presentation. Uh, it'll be sent to you uh, through Sylvain or or a member. Uh, the the link to my paper that I published on the first of July. It's on the Frontier Center for Public Policy. Was written for one reason and one reason only. It is to hold criminally accountable premiers and MOHs in Canada. What they have done, wave after wave, is criminal negligence causing death. So, so if you ask me what I'm doing, I'm working now with groups of lawyers to try and hold a premier and their MOH criminally accountable in the courts. Do I think it'll work? Absolutely not. But the reason I wrote the paper is to prove exactly how criminal what we've done is. And, and folks, it's just simply criminal. It, it, it's not, not, not incompetence, it's criminal. Wave after wave, repeating the same pattern, ignoring all evidence and ignoring all facts is criminal. And so I've written, I've written the paper, read it for yourself, agree with me or not. I know what I need. I need a very large law firm and I need a class action lawsuit group of people. And I need a team of expert witnesses. I pretty much have the team because people keep coming to me volunteering for all the little pieces of the pie. And we can talk about vaccines. We can talk about um, uh, lockdowns of seniors homes. We can talk about other severe illness and disease. We can talk about treatments. It's all part of one pushback. But the reason I, I'm forced to go to the courts is I tried for 12 months to turn one premier. I, I simply couldn't do it. And I couldn't do it by bringing a gang of my friends with me. It was impossible that they are uh, in mass formation. They have locked themselves into this response and th- their political lives depend on following it through to the end. But while they do that, they are causing massive deaths in societal damage, mental health, Uh, our children, um, um, other severe illnesses and disease, the destruction of our economy, not to mention the over 27,000 seniors they killed. 
So, so from my point of view, it's criminal negligence causing death. So that, that's my position. It's in a paper. It's published on the, on the internet, on Frontier Center for Public Policy. And so if you ask me each of the individual components, my answer is the same. It's criminal. I'm going to the courts. Do I think the courts will, will uphold me? No, the courts so far have ruled in favor. And, and the finding coming out of Manitoba of the case from March was, was simple. The judge said, we just have to trust our MOH. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the reason we have independent courts, and I think the courts have failed. But each time, we've got to get the mainstream media to ultimately pick up a case and say what we did is wrong, or folks, we're going to keep doing this, and we're going to do this in every pandemic in the future. All right, thank you. Uh, next question, how can we stop the COVID-19 mandate and especially on kids from 5 to 11 before it starts to injure or kill our kids and grandkids? Well, that, that, I think that's going to be the big one. As I mentioned, I, I think we're, we're heading into a new um, phase in, 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 in Canada with the 5 to 11s because there are a lot of uh, adults who um, were quite willing to say, oh, okay, I guess I... Um, I have to get the um, vaccine, even if I'm not sure I want it or not. But once it comes to your children, that's a little bit different. Actually, it's a whole lot different. And uh, I, I don't know exactly what the figures are, but I think that there is something like a third of <clears throat> a third of parents who really believe that they want to get their children vaccinated, the five to 11s. Uh, a third who uh, are sort of undecided, and a third who say definitely no. So I, in my philosophy, this is a matter for the parents to decide. A parent should have the right to decide what they think is best for their children. And uh, uh, nobody can call a parent who says, well, I think that the, the disadvantages or the possible risks outweigh the, the benefits to my child. Nobody can call them uh, a, a crazy or an anti-vaxxer or something like that. That's a, that's a legitimate uh, decision. And they, have, they, they, uh, uh, they can certainly back that up with, with, with science. So if a parent wants to have their child vaccinated, yes, they should, they should do that. That's their right as a parent. They have to make decisions on behalf of their children. But for heaven's sake, if a parent says, no, I don't want to have my five-year-old vaccinated, that is the right. And the unfortunate thing is that is going to be uh, run over with a, a bulldozer in Canada um, unless people do something about it. And I mentioned the fact that uh, already uh, parents are having their children come home and say, look, I don't want to get vaccinated and I know my parents don't want me to but goodness gracious I'm not going to have any kind of life at school because the uh, all of the clubs and and uh, uh, that sort of thing say I have to be vaccinated if I want to be a member uh, and my, my best friend's uh, parents says I can't come over to the house unless I'm vaccinated well all of that's going to happen to the 511 to 11s very soon so I'm, I'm just predicting that uh, we are going to see a lot of uh, very totally reasonable parents, uh, but who are very, very upset with the idea that the government is saying they must do something. And uh, I'm very firm on this. The, the parent should have the right to decide 
whether their child should have this vaccination or not. Thank you. Uh, question number six. Um, okay, why can we have a health debate with real doctors that's who have treated COVID-19 patients and scientists so we could have more transparency on the side effects of this COVID-19 experimental drug. Let it be public so people could see the truth and show the real data on side effects and deaths in Canada and around the world. So it, it happens, but unfortunately only on alternate media. If you haven't seen uh, Dina McLeod with Michael Thiessen, and you just type in Dina McLeod, Michael Thiessen, the truth about vaccines or something like that. This woman is, is a lady who has spent the last 20 years reading pharmaceutical companies data and advising oncology doctors in Canada. She's based out of Toronto um, on whether or not uh, certain drugs that are being developed through big pharma are suitable and appropriate for use in oncology. And the doc, the oncology doctors of Canada go to her in order to see whether or not the shiny glossy from the big pharma on a new drug uh, makes sense. And so what she does is she drills down into the two and three years worth of testing. She did an excellent piece uh, one month ago. She got all the data from the 12 week trial prior to the emergency approval of the vaccines and the six month trial data actually from each of the companies um, that was given to the governments, but never released to the public. She got it and she did a complete description of what the data of that testing actually says. It, I put it to you, you make your own decisions and your own uh, uh, opinions. Uh, I personally believe that what she did was extraordinary. And she shows from those two sets of data from the actual companies, the serious uh, concerns that people should have by age group, okay? And so she breaks it down by age group. So it's Dina McLeod with Michael Thiessen um, on, on um, vaccine data and, and you'll get it. Okay, uh, next question. In a shared custody situation where one person brings the other to court for vaccine refusal, how does a parent protect their child against the judge's ruling to have the child vaccinated? How does the parent protect themselves himself from a ruling to be vaccinated? Thus far, it seems like all rulings have been in favor of vaccination, regardless of the information provided. All right, well, that's, I'm, a, I'm a judge who used to do custody cases. So this, is a, this would be a very, very uh, tough one where you have one parent who says, uh, yes, I believe it's in my child's best interest to have the child vaccinated. And the other parent who says, no. So uh, I guess the legal answer probably would be if, if one parent had custody of the child and the other parent had basically uh, visiting rights, then the parent with the uh, uh, with the custody rights would uh, would have the right to make the uh, decision. But in a case of shared custody, that gets very tough. And I, I, I quite frankly, 
I don't know what the answer is. I can tell you that sort of the prevailing mood in the country is, is, is pro-vaccination. I think, I don't know exactly what the, the figures are, but most of the, the people are pro-vaccination and the judges as a whole seem to be pretty pro-vaccination. So, but I cannot give you an answer to that. That's a very tough question. And I'm kind of glad I'm retired now because I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to make that very, very tough decision. Okay, thank you. Um, next one. Can we challenge the removal of the right to travel domestically and internationally by air and rail for the non COVID vaccinated? The only I way you can, go, sorry. Ahead. go ahead, David. The, the, the only way you can do it domestically is by turning your premiers. The only way you can, you'll never be able to do it internationally because every country in the world has the right to declare their sovereignty of what's required to enter their country. But domestically, the only way to stop it is by turning your premiers, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that's 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 probably uh, that that's that, that's probably right. The uh, uh, the examples I gave about. Uh, um, you know, hardship cases where people are not going to be able to travel, I think are going to put a lot of pressure on the premiers. That's my guess, because uh, uh, traveling within Canada um, between the provinces is a right of, of, of people. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm not certain that, a, that a, um, um, a court case could not be made for the fact that people have a right uh, as Canadian citizens to travel between um, uh, provinces. How successful that would be, I'm not sure, but it, it seems to me to be a fundamental right. And it seems to me to be doing something very wrong. If you say a, a, to a person, no, you can't, you can't come to a different province. Um, uh, but as David said, the, the international situation is very different from the, uh, from the domestic situation. The only thing I would add, because I've seen the comments coming up on the bottom, every country in the world can determine whether or not you can enter the country uh, without vaccination uh, for, for any illness, okay? And so if you choose to go to a country that requires no COVID vaccine, of course you can get there. But remember, you have to get back to Canada. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm sure that's really difficult right now, the travel issue. Uh, question number nine, uh, why is the murder suicide of the billionaires, Barry and Honey Sherman still enigma in Canada after four years? We know that the actual PM visited him a week before his suicide. I have no answer. <laughs> I don't know. I followed that. I followed that case a bit, but I have no answer either, but it's a, it's a, fascinating case. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a Netflix movie pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I just read something about that, that um, they were actually uh, Trudeau's fundraisers. So, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so that was, I don't know, but there's so much stuff floating around. You don't know what to believe anymore. Yeah. All right. Question number 10. Um, it seems like many judges have been overturning many court cases that contradict the government's stand. Uh, this leaves many of us to believe 
that there is a lot of corruption among judges. How can we overcome the situation? Do you have any insight into what could be done? Well, well, I, mean, I was a judge. No, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, uh, no, I don't accept the, 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 uh, the corruption angle. Um, I think that in Canada, at least, there's always been a uh, pretty strong tradition um, in the courts. Um, uh, Canada, after all, is different than the United States, and 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 peace, order, and government is 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 our <laughs> motto. That's in our um, BNA Act. Uh, I don't think it's that um, odd that the um, courts in Canada have basically been upholding um, uh, government decisions made under the public health emergency um, uh, reasoning. Um, I think we will eventually have some interesting court decisions that are going to, uh, to uh, um, set limits on certain things, such as domestic travel. I really expect that there are going to be some um, judges who have real strong concerns about what's happening with domestic travel. And there's some uh, examples as well. But I think most of the, um, the cases that are going to be overturning some of the government um, overreach um, policies are going to come from the United States. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to get something fairly soon on vaccine mandates and uh, the Supreme Court is going to uh, to be involved, et cetera. So I think we should stay tuned on that because that's going to be uh, that's going to be very important. That does that, even though their laws are different, that does have an effect on our country as well. So I've referred to um, domestic travel. And the other area that I think uh, I've already referred to is the, um, the you know the vaccine mandates and, and school boards, for instance, saying that that little children have to be uh, vaccinated and daycare centers uh, saying that they have to be vaccinated. I think we may well get some interesting court decisions on areas like uh, like that because the government is simply um, going very far on their. Uh, uh, on their interpretation of their duty towards public health here. And they're going pretty far into the area of, of civil liberties. So I wouldn't be surprised if in some of those areas, court decisions are going to start to get pretty interesting. David, do you have a comment about that? I'd just like to add, judges are just like all Canadians. They've been subject to 20 months of relentless fear campaign. If you haven't seen it, there is an excellent piece by Matthias Desmet, D-E-S-M-E-T, Professor Matthias Desmet. He's from the University of Ghent in Belgium, and he does a description of what's called mass formation, which is what happens to the human brain when bombarded exactly the way we've been bombarded for the last 20 months. Judges are susceptible to mass formation exactly the same as the rest of the population of Canada. And I would put it to you because I actually was part of a poll, a huge poll that we did. 70% of Canadians, number one, believe lockdowns are effective. Number two, believe that vaccines are the only way out of this pandemic. That's mass formation. They actually honestly believe it. It's, it's not that they're evil. They believe what they've been fed for 20 minutes. 
months. So if you, if Professor Mateus Desmet, he explains it step-by-step step in this pandemic of how it was achieved. And, and it, 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 he doesn't talk about the process, not propaganda. That's, that's Pierce Robinson. Dr. Pierce Robinson does an excellent piece on that. But Mateus Desmet explains the human brain and how this type of crisis with an authoritarian government works really well to get there. So from my opinion, that's why I believe I can't win in court, but I intend to use court as a method of getting into mainstream media to try and convert that 70% of Canadians mass formation back to reality. And, and judges are, are subject to it just the same. They truly believe that lockdowns work and that vaccines are the only way out. You, you folk are the minority. You're not the majority. <laughs> I've worked for 21 months with massive groups, doctors, lawyers, um, uh, people in business, 70% of Canadians. That's why I do this presentation to prove to them, at least give them the evidence that what we did was wrong, why it was wrong, and that we shouldn't have done it because most people disagree with me. Yeah, it's breaking through that... Uh that that um, mindset yes it's been very effective the propaganda machine has been extremely effective you got to give the mainstream media credit that they're the ones that took what the moh said and relentlessly used the machine of propaganda but what happened to the human brain is going to take a lot of effort to turn it back well let, let me just put a, a, a slightly different different slant on that. And I said a while ago that uh, I, I sort of studied what some of the world leaders said in previous pandemics. And, and Eisenhower, who I always thought was a particularly good leader, uh, said, uh, what, and the, fir the first thing he said is, we cannot stop a virus. Uh, a virus is not something that a government has control over. Well, that's not really what our leader said, uh, Trudeau's first comment is, I will keep you safe. Well, what a promise. He's going to keep us safe from a virus. Well, he can't. He can't do that. And, and, and as soon as our leaders in my life in that trap where they were, they were promising to, to keep us safe from a virus, uh, they really were in a trap. And then they, then they did the, that lockdown. It was supposed to be 15 days to slow the curve, but then they couldn't get out of it. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm putting a slightly different slant on this saying that they, the politicians really trapped themselves because they, they, uh, they said, uh, we will keep you safe. And then of course, if they loosened any of the regulations, anything, they were going to be accused of killing people. So what did they do? They started playing to the most risk-averse people in the room. And that's what they've been doing uh, ever since this pandemic started. So what you need is strong leaders like um, Sweden and, and, and Florida, where the leaders aren't, aren't afraid to say, look, we have to start learning to live with this virus. We can't keep doing this. There are going to be mutations like this 
for years, we can't be doing this shut, shutting down and locking down and, 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 and forcing people to do this and that. We have to start learning to live with the virus. We've got to protect the vulnerable. Yes, we have a duty to do that. We've got to build up our hospital system, which we haven't done. We have to put some funds into the nursing homes, which are still unprotected. But for heaven's sakes, let's not live our lives as though we're, we're uh, in a permanent pandemic for the rest of our lives. Let's start to learn to live with the virus. Absolutely. You can't beat them, join them, right? Well, <laughs> all right. The next question is very similar, um, but there's a little twist to it. Um, so over the net, over the past few months, it has become quite clear to any casual observer that the Canadian judiciary is severely compromised. Is there any hope of winning this fight through the courts? Are there, are there enough judges with integrity left in Canada to turn the tide around? If not, can an independent court be set up? Would its rulings carry any weight? If so, how long could it take to set it up and start hearing cases? Times of the essence in that matter. Okay, I, I want to jump in just for a second yeah. with humor. Number one, you know my opinion on mass formation and what's happened in the legal system. But how many of you watched um, um, the, the Good Fight, the, the sequel to, uh, to uh, uh, The Good Wife? They set up an alternate court system in that quite hilariously. And let me just make it very clear, it didn't turn out well. And number two, it's illegal. Yeah, and I, I just mentioned a couple of areas where I think that the courts will probably become involved, where they see real government overreach. But just on the basic policies of the government, no, I think they're just going to say um, this is um, um, the, the government, the elected representatives are, uh, are uh, you know, have the power here. Uh, if they're doing the wrong thing, they're... Um, um, constituents should should kick them out. But I have mentioned the uh, the the five to elevens um, as as one of the areas, and I think domestic travel is another area where we, we may see some decisions. That's a that's a guess uh, um, uh, on my part, but uh, watch for that. Okay, uh, number thirteen. I would really be curious to know his thoughts on notices of liability and the success with small claims court. This is after unions have been non-existent in the help um, in the uh, help department for teachers. Sorry. <laughs> that was that was it. Like, what what are your thoughts on the notices of liability and the success uh, with small claims court? I, I wouldn't, uh, I don't think I'd give an opinion there. I don't know enough about what exactly what the, what, what, what's meant by the, uh, the question. I mean, a small claims court is not going to do anything that the superior courts are, uh, are, are not authorizing. The small claims court is, is inferior to the, uh, uh, to the higher courts. So I think they take their direction and that's not an insult. That's just a fact. They will take their direction from the, from the higher courts. Okay, two more questions. Um, the Federal Employee Unions, PSAC to name one, 
are not supporting their members in the vaccine mandate. They are telling us that they agree with the government and the vax mandate. Since we have no choice but to pay them huge annual union fees, what can we do to either get them to do their jobs and fight for us, get them to reimburse our fees if they still don't agree to fight for us, any other recourse we might have? Seems to me that, that the only way you can deal with your union is as a group. And you have to say to the union as a group that's large enough within the union, to, uh, to threaten the union leadership's jobs um, by how you vote for them. Because it, it, I, I'm astonished that you, uh, at, at the way some unions have simply gone along with everything and, and some haven't. And so I think it very much reflects how the, uh, the membership respond to their union leadership. It's just like a premier, you've got, you've got to turn the leadership. Or, and, and, and if you're, you think that you're going to win in the courts, you've ended up where I am. Uh, be, because if you can't use logic and common sense, then perhaps the courts are a way to overturn decisions of a union. But to me, um, it, it, it's a union represents its members. And so the members have to make it clear to the union leadership they disagree. But if you're, 30% versus 70%, you won't win. Okay, last question here on the list, and then we're going to go to the hands that are raised. Um, can the criminal code be invoked to preserve our right to not participate in the experimental treatment? If yes, what articles can we invoke? Well, I, I would just say no. Um, the criminal code is, is, is not... Um, is not for that purpose and, and, and you could not invoke the criminal code. Okay, um, all right, uh, Eli, you're first here. Thank you very much. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Good evening, thank Eli. you. Thank you so much for uh, tonight, uh, the both of you, um, this is amazing. Uh, Mr. David, sir, I, I want to say that uh, there is a lot of things from your expose that uh, I already knew or heard, but I never, never saw uh, such cohesive part, like put everything together in one place with, uh, with the links and everything else. That's amazing job. What you did there with that presentation, it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, also, Judge Brian, thank you very much for your, all your inputs. I have one question for each of you. Uh, sir, uh, for Colonel uh, David, uh, sir, what do you think what's going to be stance of uh, Canadian Army once they receive unlawful or criminal order from, from uh, head of the government? And uh, we know that's going to come because Australia, they started yesterday using army forces to put people who are quote under quote uh, uh, sick and uh, or they've been in contact with other people who are sick. What do you think was going to be Canadian Armed Forces uh, response to that? And a uh, question for Judge Brian, if you don't mind. Uh, sir, 
what we can do in the future to prevent any communist or tyrannical government that might raise in this beautiful country from doing such things like this government did to us. Thank you. Okay, so, so I'll start with the Canadian military. Um, I guess I want to break it into parts. Number one, um, every officer in the Canadian Army is taught, uh, I went through military college, Royal Roads, and then uh, Royal Military of College of Canada. And, and the ethos of the Armed Forces of Canada is very different than other countries in the world. And I served with Australians, I served with Germans, I served with Americans uh, all over the world. Um, Canadians understand, Canadians in the Canadian military understand the difference between a lawful command and an ethical command. And if it's either illegal, lawfully or illegal ethically, every step of your training as a lieutenant, as a captain, as a major, as a, as a colonel, as a, it, it, it's inbred, right? And so, for instance, when I was in the middle of war in Bosnia, if the United Nations ordered me to do something that I thought was either illegal or unethical, it, it, it was simply denied. And I'll give you an example of, of Canin, where Canadians were ordered to turn over um, uh, people they were protecting, Serbs they were protecting inside of Bosnia, sorry, inside of Croatia. And the Canadian commander just said, no, I will not do that. That's it. That's illegal and it's unethical. I think you will find that that's the first part. I believe that the officer corps and the soldiers of the Canadian forces are different than most countries in the world. I watched young corporals at the age of friggin' 21 making decisions in the middle of a battle in Bosnia that you would have been proud of. And they're still there, right? We train our people differently. And in Canada, I don't believe you would see them respond to an unethical or illegal order. Number two, the Canadian army is very small. Uh, people don't realize it, but it's about 18,000 strong. And when they said they're moving 4,000 to fight the, uh, the floods in British Columbia, that's pretty much all the non-deployed assets there are. So if you think that we could use the Canadian forces as a club in Canada, I put it to you, it's too little. Okay. And, and so, so part, of the, part of my answer is um, it, it, it simply is ineffective in that way. But I go back to my first about the ethics and, and, and lawful training of the officer corps. I think you will find that one of the things I said way back in the middle of the second wave, I talked to military, RCMP, OPP, um, um, uh, municipal police forces. And one of the things I constantly said is the police and the military are part of the know what we're doing is wrong group. And they get it. They, they totally understand. That's why most of the police forces here in Alberta have simply refused to, to enforce public health orders. They said they will not do it. Public health officers have to go and enforce those orders. The police have said they will not enforce them because they know in their own mind they're illegal and unethical. All right. And that's the court. I'm part of a court case right now that was supposed to be heard on the 20th of September. I'm an expert witness in emergency management with a group of others. And the entire premise of the case is that the public health orders are illegal. All right. That the orders themselves are illegal. 
And so that, that's the basis of the case. And I think you'll find that's why police have said we won't enforce them. I believe the military will say exactly the same thing if it's ever requested through the chain of command. And as far as my question, the question to me, um, uh, I think we're still, uh, how, how do you put it, in the fog of war here. Um, people have been quite traumatized by this whole pandemic experience. After all, for most of us, this is really the first time in our life that we've really gone through anything like this. So I'm not sure that people are all thinking completely clearly uh, right now. We're going to get out of this, and I, I'm guessing that what's happened and what's going to be happening is we're going to continue to get mutations, we're going to continue to get surges and that sort of thing. But then uh, gradually, we're going to be um, getting used to this virus. Our systems are going to start to accommodate it. And uh, it's not no longer going to see like, uh, seem like such a deadly thing. And life is going to return to normal. So hopefully, we're going to be able to talk with one another. We're going to have to have discussions. And we're going to try to be, at least I will be trying to persuade some people that we overreact and that we did things the wrong way. And we're going to have to convince um, our uh, uh, fellow citizens and then elect people who are going to do things differently the next time. Um, so I think that's the answer. It's, it's, it's not, um, uh, th there's, no, um, uh, uh, there's no simple answer here and there's no uh, answer that involves sort of uh, um, uh, violence or anything like that. It's just going to be a process of talking with each other and trying to come up with some better way to handle the situation than we did. So that, that would be my, the only comment I would make. And I would, I would personally, I'm going to be discussing some international example, examples that I think can be helpful to us, uh, situations where uh, other countries and other states, other places did things better than we did. All right, thank you. Um... Mel? Mel, you're next. Unmute yourself. <clears throat> Sorry. I was just uh, trying to clear my eyeglasses. So my, my question Warren asked, so I'm just gonna try to summarize some of them. Uh, do you hear me well or? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, okay. So uh, are international laws uh, like um, like prevailing over national law? Usually like the, is the Nuremberg Code, code a law? Brian, I'll let you start and then I'll jump in. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand. The, 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 Nuremberg, oh, the Nuremberg Convention was a... Uh, uh, an agreement among um, uh, states after the um, after the Second World War, whereby um, international uh, people uh, or from the from the uh, warring nations who had been accused of, of crimes against uh, humanity were, were were tried. That's that would that that's Nuremberg. Yes. And I guess I uh, technically it's called I believe in Nuremberg Convention. I think yeah. So, so if it's a, 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 a just a convention, it's not a law, so it doesn't prevail over our national laws, like um, like uh, all the the quarantine act and everything. 
I think you. I think you. I, and now I'm. I, this is a bit out of my area, but I think you'd you treat it more like a uh, a treaty. In other words, there's an agreement between countries. In this case, it was between the the victorious countries to um, to try the the the, the uh, uh, people from the. Um, um, the the losing forces, if you will. So it's not. I don't think you'd say no. It's not a law. It is really an agreement between the the, the various uh, countries to do things a certain way. Okay, thank you. Very Portions of uh, which yeah, have yeah. been in, introduced into Canadian laws, but they as themselves do not take precedence over. And some okay. of the things, for instance, that the United Nations does, the word genocide has a very specific meaning. We choose um, um, indiscriminately how we apply it. During the, 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 the period in, uh, in Rwanda, everybody knew it was a genocide, but everybody ignored it. So, so, so how things like that in international law are applied are very much on a country by country basis, but they don't over, they're okay. not paramount. Yeah. Okay. And like under the, I don't know if you know the, the Public Health Act of Quebec. So the article one, uh, 123, uh, the government, the minister, or any, uh, I'm just going to summarize it. We cannot, uh, we ca they cannot be taken accountable of any, uh, any decision they make under this, uh, this act. Um, uh, if it's done in good faith. So how can we prove that what they are doing it's not done on good in good faith? So is investing, for, uh, for example, in pharmaceutical companies related to the vaccine could be approved? And how can like can they, they be put in jail for this, or they're just gonna receive a fine or just lose their job because like okay? Let, let me let me jump in first because this is extremely difficult bringing criminal negligence charges against the government is really hard. And I'm working with teams of lawyers on exactly that question as we speak. And the difficulties I, are, are too long to, to discuss, but it, it is almost impossible to hold a government criminally liable in exactly what you say, if it is negligence, and at times, even if it's gross negligence. And so, I can only encourage you to download my paper. Uh, the link is, is in the presentation. It's 130 pages long. I apologize with, with uh, eight pages of references because what it proves is this isn't negligence. This is way past gross negligence. When you do the same thing okay, and ignore all the evidence over and over and over again, it becomes criminal negligence causing okay, death. And so that's what you have to do. What you just said is the key word. If it's done in good faith, if it's done, you can't call it good faith when you do the wrong thing repeatedly Repetitive, and due diligence yeah. says knew or should have known. They yeah. should have known what they were doing was killing more than it was saving. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Um. Like, is um. Like, uh, apparently, Justin Trudeau has um is a ma major shareholder in the. Sorry, Aquitas, a company that makes the nanoparticle in the vaccine. So, isn't it illeg illegal to to make money on something that he bought under his PM mandate, or is just mm -hmm. again? It's that, not that's way out there in left field for me. You have to actually prove that case. 
And then you actually have to, because anyone's allowed to own shares, right? So, so, so that's a really hard case. Really yeah, hard. but it would but, be but it's not, I'm unethical. not saying that it's not possible. It would be unethical in the federal government. But I'm not we, sure we've seen the results of unethical behavior in our prime minister, and what's the result? That's not fair. He's reelected. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so it's if it's not criminal, we can we can use this. So, um, that's I, why I wrote the paper, the, the pieces of the paper. But in, but in terms of stocks and shares, that you won't find that in my paper. But the other examples, you will. Okay, but well, I'm intending on uh, asking the email of Dr. Tam. Um, any, but I'm under ATIP, so um, you know what is ATIP? Access to Information and yep. Privacy yep. Act. So if, yeah, so if we like, apparently somebody told me this weekend that um, a kind of uh, radio rebel news did it, but apparently it was too uh, too high. Their request for information <laughs> was too friend. broad. And too so they broad, ended yeah. up with bucket loads, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and they said that because of the, the they asked there for the email with the Winnipeg lab, you, you remember two Chinese uh, researchers were selling uh, information from the Win Winnipeg microbiology Winnipeg lab to the Wuhan. Um, uh, laboratories. So, because it's under investigation with the RCMP, they couldn't get this information. But if they had uh, just tailored their, their request, they could have get at least just our email with the one lab. So, I don't know if we can get something. I think it's the way they got the, the information with Foshi. In the, you can in the always States. request the information. I strongly recommend you narrow it in scope because it will be redacted uh, for anyone else's name who's involved in what you're asking for. So as someone who used to work for the government and who used to answer FOIP requests for five years, uh, what gets released is very much on what you ask for. Don't ask for bucket loads. Focus on what you want. Focus. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for the um, presentation. It was very um, informative and uh, thank you very much for your time. Very thank well. Okay, uh, Lise, you're next. Good evening, everybody. I, I'd like to personally thank both Brian and David for all of your time, your nice presentation. And it was really, uh, like Mel said, very informative and very useful information. Um, but my question to David is that twice you mentioned that uh, the premiers would, would, should be going on mainstream media and change their narrative. How do you suppose that would be achieved? How would you get a premier to actually go on mainstream media and change the narratives? Okay, N number one, I obviously am incapable of doing it because that's what I've been trying to do for 20 months. Um, the, the only way to get a premier to change their position is by them realizing that their province doesn't trust them, doesn't believe them, and pushes back. And, and that's through legal protest, that's through uh, direct access to the Premier's line, that's direct access through the MLAs, that's by making the democratic process work for you. Once they realize it, people like me 
are have been waiting and begging them for 14 months to put COVID in context. Little things like in November, it was announced that, that COVID had just mat, mat passed the terrible threshold of 5 million deaths worldwide. Forget whether or not you think that number's real or not. 5.5 million people in a two-year period, so 2.5 million people every year, less than COVID killed in its first year, 2.54 million people die of pneumonia every single year, every year. COVID is pneumonia. The stats are the same. The way it presents is the same. You just have to start telling Canadians, we didn't close for our whole economy every year for pneumonia. There, there are like 50 examples of placing COVID in context, of placing your hospital capacity in context and not saying your hospital system's going to be overwhelmed. Confidence in government, if you download my paper, there's a complete annex on how to create confidence in government. And, and people like me would work with a premier who's ready to shift the narrative they were prepared to let their MOH on TV for 20 months, five days a week, every single night. They have to do the same thing to reverse it, okay? And, and the material is pretty easy to develop, but it's actually in my paper. There's a whole annex on confidence in government. So I know what I would ask them to say, but first you, the public of Canada, has to force them to switch their vote. The, the other comment that I'm going to uh, mention is that when you said that Doug Ford reversed his uh, mandates for uh, hospital uh, workers, well, that was nice to, for him to say that on the television, but in reality, none of the hospitals are reversing their policies. And that's the problem. The boil down effect of fear is everyone tries to outdo each other. And so when we started the lockdowns, Ontario was the first. BC, then Alberta tried to outdo what was done. In our school boards here in Alberta, the medical officer of health hasn't mandated a whole bunch of things, but the school boards did to be seen to be over compliant. And the only way to stop it is to reverse the fear because it's the parents to the school boards demanding that their children be vaccinated, demanding that the schools go to cohort groups, demanding that the children wear masks in every grade level, demanding that children be sent home if they come in contact when we know that doesn't work. So the fear is now mass formation has made it into the minds of the public. You have to switch that. And you're absolutely right. Doug Ford knowingly said he was backing off of the mandate, knowing that the, the College of Surgeons and Physicians promised to remove the license from any doctor who didn't continue to enforce that requirement. Well, thank you. All right. Um, so we have a few more people. We've got one, two, three, four, five. Just if I can say, I have no backstop. I'm prepared to stay all night. I am, I'm going to have to leave fairly soon. Maybe another question that I'm going to have to bow out. Okay, myself. so who has a question for Brian? Uh, me, but, but maybe someone else too, because I already speak. I'm just going to let oh, someone else can I, can I just make a quick comment? Yeah, go ahead, Susan. I, I just want to make a quick comment. Yeah. Okay, I was listening to you both. I, I appreciate your, your participation here. I was listening... 
for a golden nugget to see if I can have something of value I can use a call to action and in the case of um, of Brian uh, I really appreciated when you said let's look at let's research the precedents in the United States the victories in court and let's start reflecting that light here in Canada let's start to use that um, I had never thought about that so this is something I can use and I thank you for that Brian in the case of uh, David I, I really appreciated when you said we have to get the word out to the MLAs, et cetera, that we don't trust you guys anymore. And that is another call to action in my case. And just last thing I want to mention is regarding the military. Um, I lived right in the center of 1970, the War Measures Act in Montreal, where they, find, wow. they found the, the people, the murderers. Uh, was in my area. And then 1990, I moved to Oka, Ganasataki, right <laughs> on the reserve, where I saw another intervention with the military. And in those, that, uh, so, and anyways, I can go on. But the main thing I wanted to say is that I do remember, I was about 13 in, in 1970, and I remember uh, the, the, the officers were really nice to all of us. And it inspired me uh, in confidence in, the, in our military but I was much older in 1990, and um, it was amazing that they won a victory using psychological warfare without any weapons. They didn't shoot any uh, of the Mohawks. Um, and um, so, but uh, anyways, that's, that's a long story. But I really appreciated them, and they would, uh, one of them would park his APC in my driveway because I had a long driveway. I would offer the soldiers uh, to come in and take a shower. Uh, because they stayed quite a while. Now in 2021, we have uh, meetings at Sunday in Lac Lamy, and we have uh, four active duty, uh, uh, apart from the veterans, we, we have four uh, active duty uh, soldiers, um, one corporal, one captain, one major, and another colonel uh, who think like us, and they know a lot of stuff, but you know they're not allowed to say anything. Um, but they're anxious to get out so that they can be with us. I believe the majority of the Canadian uh, military will not harm a Canadian, will not force us to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not concerned about them at all. So that's all I want to say. And I, I thank you both for being here. Thanks for those two golden nuggets. I'll use them. Okay. Um, so Mel, if you, does anyone else have a question for Brian? I, I just wanted to make a like a statement kind of just the fact that um and, and i don't know who is aware of it but i know it uh, that m there's um they did testing for any military and if they tested positive for mthfr uh, that's a gene mutation uh, they were no longer allowed to get any vaccines they, they could not because what they had discovered was that mthfr causes your body to not be able to get rid of toxins and there are toxins in the the vaccines so they did this and um, if you talk to a military person, they will tell you they got they got tested for MTHFR. So it's very interesting that this you know happened in in Ontario. I'm not sure about Quebec, but I know people in Ontario that have told me so. So it's very interesting that they do this, but 
and and then they wouldn't get their vaccine so that they would be uh, capable of carrying out their duties. So I don't know if you guys are aware of that. That's all I wanted to ask. I'm going to have to bow. No, I'm sorry, I have a, a commitment, but I want to thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, Sylvain, thank you. And uh, good night, people. And David, we'll do it again. <laughs> Absolutely, Brian. Great seeing you again. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, uh, so um, Chiboli, I don't, I'm sorry, how do you pronounce your name? You... It's, it's Chiboli, that's, that's fine. Um, my question, and I don't know the gentleman that just left, I was hoping he would answer this question, but uh, if there's someone else that can answer this, that would be helpful. I just wanted some clarification on the religious exemption process. Um, is there some sort of government application form or process that one needs to complete uh, for proof of religious exemption. The reason I ask this is because um, through my employment, of course, I have to show, uh, I have to use the religious exemption through my, um, through my work, but I recently could not go into a, a government building um, by just saying that I have religious exemption. They wanted some sort of government issued religious exemption proof. So I just wanted some clarification on that. Is there some sort of website that one goes to to download an application form for that? Um, I, I think I might be able to give you a tip. I saw recently there is a form, um, and I think it's on the uh, Feds for Freedom site that I saw it. Are you aware of that group? N no, I don't know it. Okay, they're called Feds for Freedom. Okay. And you, if you Google that, you'll find them. Um, they also have a Telegram group and uh, they're on other media as well. Oh, okay. And they okay. have resources there. And I think one of the resources is, the, um, is that form. Pretty sure I, that's where oh. I saw it. Okay, I'll, I'll look it up. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, Pamela, did you have anything else to say? No, that's okay. Thanks. Okay, I'll lower your hand. Um, Sada. Hi, thank you. Uh, Colonel, I just wanted to add that um, one thing that's really horrifying me about the experiment happening right now with these injections is that no Canadian is being given the proper information to exercise informed consent. And I wanted to ask you your thoughts on that. And for example, the actual trial data, like let's say for Pfizer and actually all of them, the efficacy was less than 1%. Uh, so on the basis of efficacy alone, none of these injections met the threshold for uh, emergency use authorization. And the medical bodies also have, in my opinion, a lot of blood on their hands because any doctor who's trying to uh, express their opinions about the dangers of this synthetic gene therapy technology uh, is being threatened uh, that they will lose their license. Okay, so sorry, just a sec. I'm, I'm just, so I don't forget, there's three thoughts to this. Um, so 
I don't get into the vaccines because uh, I do not know the science, but as an emergency manager, let me get it. I'll start with the vaccine part and then I'll talk about the medical system. The vaccine part of it to me is as an emergency manager, you never ever manage a pandemic based on the arrival of a vaccine. Never. The reason you don't is because vaccines take three to five years to develop, to develop them safely, to ensure that they're effective so that they stop the spread, they stop people getting sick, and they stop people dying. Three pieces. And that takes three to five years. So you, as an EM, you never count on a vaccine. You count on protection of those most at risk, insurance of critical infrastructure, and then ensuring that the minimum impact on everyone possible, right? So, so, so that's what an emergency manager does. So I, I never even talk about vaccines until you're three to five, right? It, it's not part of my recovery plan. It's not part of my response plan, my recovery plan. It, 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 it's simply not. It, it's not part of what I would ever consider a logical step in a pandemic. Therefore, I believe what we're doing is totally illogical. Three things that need to happen three years from now, when we're done dealing with the insanity of this response, and we've been able to correct 70% of Canadians' minds to understand that it was insanity, not a logical response. Lockdowns don't work, all the rest of that. Three things. Number one, every provincial and the federal public health act, the law that governs public health, in 13 jurisdictions plus our country as a whole have to be rewritten. The key, they have to be rewritten to remove the powers of the medical officers of health, who is a bureaucrat, not an elected official. They have to remove the powers for anything other than a small localized event, one municipality. Okay, that's step one. Public health acts have to be rewritten. Step two, we must place public civilian oversight into the College of Physicians and Surgeons or Surgeons and Physicians, depends on your province, in every province and territory in Canada. The College of Surgeons and Physicians have gone way outside of their mandate and are now doing what I believe is illegal acts in how they're dealing with their doctors and making decisions on things that were never in their purview. So we must bring the colleges under control and place permanent civilian oversight inside the colleges and remove the power from the doctors. That's two. Number three, we must put civilian oversight into every health system in every province and territory. Here in Alberta, it's called the Alberta healthcare system. Every province and territory, the people who actually are handed a bucket load of money every year to build capacity. We have for the highest amount of money per capita in the organization of economic developed countries. We have the least number of acute care beds. We have the least number of ICU beds. We have the worst turnaround times by disease. We have terrible response times. The entire system has bucket loads of money with the worst outcomes. We must stop saying doctors know the medical system best. We hand you 
$2.5 billion, 40% of the provincial spending. And you guys just figure out how to spend it because we trust you. No more, never again. There are definitive studies that show capabilities, acute care beds, um, and, and by each of the serious diseases and the actual outcomes. If we don't stop handing bucket loads of monies to doctors in our systems and expect a different result, we're crazy. So three things. We have to rewrite the public health care acts nationally, every province and federally. We have to redefine and put civilian oversight into the College of Surgeons and Physicians. And we have to put civilian oversight, continuous and constant, into our medical systems. If we don't, we will continue to have the worst medical systems in the free world, and we'll do a pandemic just like this the next time. Okay, thank you. Uh, Sylvain, did you have something else to ask? No, that was excellent, uh, Colonel. Is that in your report, these uh, three points that you outlined? No, that's my rage, I'm sorry. My 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 uh, position. I did two position papers. You can find them both on Frontier. The first one is uh, discussing charter rights and freedoms and how it's unconscionable to remove any charter right of freedom in this pandemic with all the facts and all the evidence. The other one is holding premiers criminally and MOHs criminally accountable. That piece is uh, part of what I I'm, I have drafted for um, a royal commission in the future. Uh, trying to put, and I haven't published it yet, but trying to make people understand that our medical system is broken, and in particular, the public health acts are broken. I haven't published it yet. Okay, um, Sylvain. My question is related to uh, this topic, so Yeah, that's fine. Um, Go ahead, no. Sylvain isn't responding, so. Okay, so um, it's funny because like I was thinking about this, uh, almost the same thing, uh, but I was thinking just about uh, having a, a, an independent body uh, looking over all the physician colleagues uh, across Canada. And I was thinking about also if we could, like if it, if it would be a good idea to, uh, to to, to do lawsuit against uh, the, the, the college across Canada. Absolutely. Because right now, what they are doing is totally legal, as you said, Melanie. So, so um, the, the, the healthcare is a provincial responsibility. And I'm a big guardian of provincial versus federal responsibilities because government creep is very obvious in this pandemic. Uh, so this has to be done province by province. You have to put in place uh, uh, an oversight with teeth body for each piece of that. And so the College of Physicians and for the actual system. And, and there used to be in Alberta, for instance, for long-term care homes, there was a civilian oversight body that actually inspected every one of the 55 long-term care homes with a defined set of requirements. They did a announced inspection annually and an unannounced inspection annually. You need civilian oversight inside the medical system. And if you split long-term care home, then I would say you need a third civilian oversight, but you have to do it inside the medical system 
And there has to be measurable, accountable deliverables. And there has to be in the College of Physicians, there has to be a civilian over advisory body that stops the college stepping outside its bounds and ensures that doctors aren't being disciplined because of pet peeves amongst doctors. Okay, and so you have to build those, but first you have to rewrite the acts. And do you think for, for right now, just to, to stop this mandate, do you think it would be a good idea to go and like sue the, 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 each um, college in every provinces? I think uh, if you Quebec, read my like... paper, you'll find that I, I talk about the colleges there. First, I go after the premiers. If the premiers did the right thing, the colleges wouldn't have power. Yes, yeah, you're right. But at the same time, if we can get the information out, like because I think, I believe a lot of physicians want to speak, but they, they are not allowed. So if we can break this, this kind of uh, I, I power understand, they have I understand over and the... agree completely with what you're saying. It, it, everyone has been, everyone's job is threatened in Canada right now. One way or another, the pandemic is being used to threaten individuals' workplace. And, and doctors are one workplace. And I know personally, uh, the lawyers that were assigned to protect some of the doctors who've written with me, one of the links uh, uh, in the presentation, the second one is a paper we just published, but we've written several, Dr. Ari Jaffe, who's the chief infectious disease doctor in Alberta. He works in the children's hospital and he has written and I'm surprised he's not fired. The colleges come after him, has threatened him, but individuals have threatened him and his family, forget the college. And I mean, with wow. physical violence. So, so everybody has to do what they can. And within many of my presentations were to doctors and I constantly hear the same thing. We, I just have to walk away and never practice medicine again. So, so it, 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 everyone has their level of risk. Okay, and and some are brave and some aren't, and and I understand completely. Each person has to make their own choice. What I'm saying is, three to five years from now, we have to change the system that allowed this to happen. Right now, you have to give me a premier. Yeah, somebody a premier has to become a DeSantis for Canada for a province. He he's only a state, right? We're the same. We need a premier in a province. Okay, so one more question. Thank you. Oh, are you are you done? Um, yes, I was done. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank, thank you very much. It was You're very. Uh... Okay, um, Eli, go ahead. Uh, sir, I have a two quick question for you. Um, 10, 11 years ago, uh, there was uh, something similar called swine flu. And uh, the same thing uh, happened, the uh, uh, vaccine was developed overnight. And, uh, but that vaccine was stopped after 21 deaths. And it was uh, stopped in a European parliament by a German, German uh, minister of uh, health. Uh, so why this vaccine isn't stopped after so many thousands of deaths uh, that are uh, just official numbers. I'm talking just of uh, official numbers from the uh, states and Canada. Uh, and the second question: When are we gonna see your name on the ballot? <laughs> I'll answer the second question first. 
Never. Um, <laughs> I, I, I learned a very long time ago that politics is not something I never, ever want to be part of. I've worked very close with municipal government, provincial government, and federal government my whole life in the Army and after. And uh, I am uh, retired for a reason. My first career uh, has left scars on me that, that I, I can never work full time again. So, so the, the answer to your second question is never. The answer to your first question, why has the vaccine not been stopped? I'll only give you my opinion. If you watch Doc, uh, uh, Dina McLeod's presentation with Michael Thiessen on the data behind the vaccine, they should never have been approved. Uh, why were they approved? Because we, the West, had locked ourselves into, and, and I don't mean the pun, we had locked ourselves into the lockdown response. And the only way, once you back yourself into that corner, Brian hit it on the head several times. Once you back yourself in the corner, the only way out is a vaccine. You can't suddenly admit that the disease wasn't that deadly and you never needed to do it in the first place, you'll lose your political career. We backed ourselves into the corner that the vaccine was the silver bullet. So why have, in spite of all of the evidence that, that we knew before we approved it, that we have approved, that, that we know after the six-month trials, and in spite of all the evidence that's coming worldwide in terms of the side effects of the vaccine and the fact that it doesn't work, it doesn't stop transmission, it doesn't stop people getting sick, and it doesn't stop deaths, except in a very small particular group to a small dose causes them to die less frequently. Why, why, why can't we stop it? Because there is no political will to do that. They have placed their entire career on a vaccine saving us all. The, pre, the Prime Minister of Canada in the second wave threatened the provinces that he would cut off the transfers from the federal government to the provinces if they didn't do the right thing, and the right thing was very clearly locked down sooner, harder, and longer till he could be the hero and issue a vaccine. The premiers bought right into that and believed that the vaccine is going to save everyone. So why haven't we canceled the use of this vaccine in spite of evidence? Because it's their only way to save their political careers. That's my opinion. Okay, thank you. Molly? Hi. Uh, I had a question because I hear you say that uh, uh, we should to target in PM right now, then slowly change the system. But I also hear you say somebody like you will not interested in do the politics kind of game. So where's the solution? <laughs> so I you know, for me, you know, if we couldn't dig into the fear, what about why people kind of not be able to face in the truth because there's no hope, right? Why you awaken to die, to see us die or just sleep to die? It's it's same things, like people don't want to face in the psychological pain. So I'm actually here looking for solutions. So I would like to ask for any input. What do you think about this question? Okay, if you, in the presentation, the last yeah. slides is the eight bullets, how you walk out of what we've done. 
It's right in the in the slides. Okay, my last eight bullets, it's on two slides. That's how you reverse the process. And, and it's step by step what a premier needs to do. But you have to get a premier. So how you let the premier listen to you? And uh, so for, for instance, uh, even the, um, well, I'm, I was not, I left the mainstream academic a long time before, 20, more than 20 years now, but because I, I do my own research. And uh, so right now I even hear my friends or in the academic world, they call themselves or in the mainstream. They just thinking we are, like they talk about people outside the, <laughs> the world, it's like they are crazy or something, right? So how you let them to listen to you instead of not listen to them, <laughs> so. Okay, I come back to the point that for people that are not brainwashed, you have to make a concerted campaign. My route didn't work, okay? My route, of, and I know they got them. They went directly to the premiers. I wrote 12 letters, one a month, with the exact steps that, that and, and offering my services to come and brief them and work with them in order to walk back. I just needed one out of the 13. That route didn't work, so I wrote the papers, the two papers that I've written, but the one in particular on how to hold them criminally responsible. The, only way you will ever get a premier to walk this back is if the public, and it starts with small groups and the groups get bigger and bigger and bigger. I watched the protests worldwide this last weekend that the mainstream media didn't cover against the vaccines. There were protest movements in Canada. I, and I am, okay, let me be very clear. I'm a guy who's been in some pretty unpleasant places in some very unpleasant times for those country. I only support legal and proper protests. I do not support violence in any way. I do not support anarchy in any way. I've been in countries that were going through that civil wars and even worse. You'd never want to see that in this country, but I strongly encourage legal protests. And folks, you, it's up to you. Okay. I, I, I've, okay. I've given the ammunition. Okay, so I have another question. Okay, legal. I supporting kind of orderly protest, but unfortunately, uh, you know, the legal system, if you, you know, the building through the system is a historically, right? So then the legal process is so long time and it's adding on, adding on by human experience, which deal with the dark side. So basically, it's getting more and more process-wise going to be very slowly. So I, okay, I'm actually was, because the situation I'm at, I had been seeing the situation coming before it's coming. I, so I'm kind of feel that, is there any chances people will review? I'm still looking for the way, okay? I have lots of things in my mind, but I couldn't get a, out because it's like I'm autistic some way in my own mind and uh, but I also understand uh, you know when you say the way I'm a little bit concerned because my message was uh, after this COVID if we're not turning <laughs> it's a little bit too late I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit worried maybe I was wrong so I'm just uh, trying to question say whether there's a chances we could focus on solution, even dig deeper historically and time-wise, and then between 
countries national nation wise because it's the conflict itself have to be dissolved by some even maybe another dimension understanding so i do believe okay i'm attracted by Kenny, canada it's because the culture of christian and i was frustrated by canada it's also because seems we left uh, so much battle was on the roots of culture. Um, I'm Buddhist background and I I was a seeker. So I'm kind of go through this process. So I just uh, curious, is there chances if the, the approval of the spiritual, because we were talking about uh, First Nation, we wanted to do lots of, you know, reconcile, like, what's the word, reconcile, Sorry for my English, I lost the words because too late. <laughs> the, the, the peace work with them, but unfortunately they also lose, lost their spiritual originally order. So is there the chances people or people who has the brain can discover the things or find a way for leading the people? Because otherwise we just threw in idea and the people need something to do, right? <laughs> anyway, I there's, thought too there's many groups. Yeah. And whether they're religious groups, whether they're workplace groups, whether they're uh, groups by job or trade that can come together and can make it clear to the local governments that things need to change. And, and each of those groups has a role to play. And, and so I encourage people that the reason I do, I've done this presentation since December uh, of 2020 and, and trying to empower groups to, to find their own voice. I'm one voice. My one voice didn't, even though it has the right credentials, didn't attract a premier. Maybe a group, uh, a spiritual group, maybe a workplace group, maybe a trade group, maybe a, and, and I go back to, to what Brian just said. Some of the legal precedents that we see south of the border, we need to use every lever that we can find. To me, it's unconscionable that our medical officers of health haven't looked at Sweden. There's yeah, a no. perfect role model, right? But they choose not to. So how do we impress them to? And my final path was to, to go to the courts for criminal negligence. I simply ran out of ideas. So that's why I give it out to, to all of you. And empower you to go use your ideas. See if you can do better than me. I would love it if you do. But okay, I heard that there's a lobby, right? So to have a lobby. If you're going to do that, do you think you will have find people to lobby for you to even talking to people who before you? And I don't know. Like I found that the business can have a lobby to government, which to me is a crazy. Like how could they they do that? Like the system was totally open. Lots of open leak position for them to be corrupted. I so think Winston Churchill said it best. Democracy is the worst form of government other than every other one we've tried so far. It's <laughs> messy. It's slow. We've got to turn the boat. Okay. Um, thank you, Molly. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I have a um, something that I'd like to ask about but I'm sure you're aware of what's going on in other countries and you're, you know, you focused most of your um, talk on Canada, which, you know, makes sense because we all live here. 
Um, but if we look at other countries and what they're doing um, and how they're setting precedent, um, I, I'm concerned that this might come here. Uh, in particular, we're looking at Austria where they first locked down unvaccinated people. And then a week later, um, we can all kind of, um, you know, guess why they did this. A week later, they locked down everybody because apparently the health system is overwhelmed. I don't believe any of it. Um, and what the government there has also said is that they are, um, everyone has to be vaccinated by February 1st. And they haven't talked about the exact measures that will be in place, but they're going through the legal process uh, or the political process, the, the judicial process of making a law, making the mandates lawful. And um, so there will be fines of 3,005 or 600 euro, which is like a month of, of an average month's salary. And then there, I mean, you can only imagine, so how many times are you going to pay the fine? And then what? Well, then there's jail time. So, and then we look at Britain, we're looking at these, these, these so-called health passes that the Nazis also had. <laughs> Right, we're look. We're seeing a lot of parallels to um, what happened before, and then during the Second World War. So I'm yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering, um, David, what you, how you see this all playing out? Whether, you know, what's going on in in Australia? Every country has its own, uh, I guess, take on it in a sense. But at the same time, the goal is the same. Uh, globally. Well, and so we, we do have to put it in context that not everybody's following the same path, right? There are many countries in Europe that, that aren't anymore. In fact, many countries in Europe have already declared the pandemic over. They called it endemic and they're done with it. And so so we're seeing two conflicting camps emerging. And, and the reason I focus on Canada is my life and my travels, both with a rifle and without a rifle, taught me that Canada is a different place. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada really is different than anywhere else in the world. And yes, we've totally trampled it, but, but other countries didn't even try and write it. And so I, I want to find solutions for Canada, but I work with the world. I, I work with Panda out of South Africa. I've written with and done work with them. Uh, Dr. Ramesh Thacker, Professor Emeritus, the University of Australia um, in Canberra. He and I have published papers and worked together and, and tried to influence the government of Australia. You can see how well we did there uh, not. Um, uh, uh, people all over the world, uh, Great Britain, uh, I've got folks that I, I've got the global perspective, but each country, as I look at them, I understand the differences and, and not to be rude, I only care about Canada. And so to be, I have six grandchildren. I have three children. Uh, my grandchildren are all in high school and university. Um, I, I want, I, I, I did my life to try and make this country better for them. And so what I'm trying to achieve is, is to turn a province because 
if you look south of the border, they're our biggest trading partner. They are closest to us. And yeah, we have all the Canada-US problems, but, but someone like DeSantis will ultimately convince a premier in Canada. Someone like uh, North Dakota, will, uh, South Dakota will ultimately have an effect on a premier in Canada. It may not be the ones that are sitting in the chair right now, but the one that replaces them maybe. And, and, and Wisconsin and, and the, the, the obvious difference between California and Florida is, is so apparent that even mainstream media can't keep ignoring it. And so what I'm hoping is that evolution, and I want to go back to, I'm not a revolution guy. I've seen what comes out of revolution, authoritarian governments and hell. So I'm a evolution guy. I, I want to try and bring all those outside examples in, but, but to save Canada, the, the rest of the world will do its own steps to get where it's going. And some countries will flip and become uh, far right wing. And, and I, I don't care whether it's communism or, or, or fascism. When, when if people say, if you go left far enough and right far enough, you meet again, right? It, it's really a straight line, authoritarian government to democracy and, and where they fit. So from my point of view, it's trying to find a lever to turn a premier because we just need one to walk their province out of it. And other provinces will go, well, I guess we got it. It, I really think it's finding that one. You, you, see, you, you probably may or may not follow the political uh, uh, falling apart here in Alberta, but the reason why half of Premier Kenny's cabinet hate his guts is I briefed them with that same presentation. And, and they know what we're doing is wrong. So the question is, is he going to be the one that walks us out of it or is it whoever replaces him? I got to find one Premier somehow. We'll be praying more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it takes a change of, of heart, right? I mean, their mind, minds are so set in this direction. And that's why I encourage you to, to, to go and, and watch the one-hour presentation by um, uh, Pro Professor Matthias Desmet on mass formation. Forget the propaganda. Propaganda is important. The tool that was used to get us here is, is uh, Dr. Pierce uh, Robinson. He's the world's expert, and, and I converse and work with him. I understand the tool that was used, but what's been done to the human brain, you need to watch the one from Des, uh, um, uh, Professor Desmet out of the University of Ghent, because that's what we have to fix. We have to break 70% of Canadians' brains out of it. And to do that, I need a premier. Mm -hmm. Or you need a premier. All right. Uh, Mel, did you have something else to? Just a small question. Um, Matt, the Professor Matthias, you said, um, is, is the link inside your presentation? No, ma'am, it's not. But if you just uh, uh, Google mass formation, Professor mass formation. Matthias Desmet, D-E-S-M-E-T. D-E-S-M-E-T. -E it, okay. D-E-S-M-E-T, it'll pop up right away, but mass formation, Professor Desmet, and you'll know you got the right guy if he's a professor at the University of Ghent in, uh, in Belgium. And he's Thank brilliant. He and I have talked and shared material, and, but, but, but it really helps you understand what happened step-by-step step to the human brain in Canada. Well, around the Thank world. Thank again. Around the world, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, I've, yeah, it's everywhere. Um, all right, there's an iPhone guest. And I guess that would be me. Okay. 
Um, yeah, I was just going to ask. Um, there's an election coming up in Ontario. I guess they're coming up everywhere. But uh, the one, the one in Ontario, you have uh, Randy Hillier, who's uh, who's teaming up with PPC to. Uh, I wonder if it'd be a good thing to team up with him, as they they have the same sentiments we do. I, I, I brief politicians all across the country. I can only encourage you to find politicians that think as we do and uh, try and put them in power because it, it'll be someone, let's use Randy as an example. Yes, I've briefed Randy. He's seen this presentation three times um, and, and the teams he works with. Um, I've offered it to any politician anywhere to brief their entire cabinet, but you need to choose premiers that are going to walk you out of this mess, not take you deeper into it. If you see a premier who espouses lockdowns and vaccines, don't vote for them. Okay, does anyone, oh, Eli, you've got... Sorry. <laughs> okay, I, we're going to have to end this soon because I have... Uh, Okay. Dobrovici. <laughs> sir. Uh, just one question. When you mentioned the uh, politicians, uh, did you had a chance to talk to those uh, uh, people from uh, from a uh, uh, party party uh, conservative party that Doug Ford get rid of them and they are forming right now a new blue party? In Canada, they started in Ontario. There, I don't think they're in Alberta. Yes, yet. But did you have a chance to talk to them? I've talked this? to the uh, Liberty Coalition. I've talked. I've talked to any group that that wanted me to present. I'm not part of any of them, but I've done my presentation to them to give them the information. So Randy Hillier, in fact, is is who you're talking about. He's the Blue Conservatives. Um, uh, so yes, I've presented to them, but I'm not part of them. I've talked to uh, similar groups here in Alberta, similar groups uh, all across Canada. In fact, uh, there's there's groups that understand. And the question is, is do they have the courage to walk out of it? And the third part of the question is, can they actually get elected? And, and I don't care political stripes, conservative, liberal, NDP, anyone that'll walk this back. I, I found that the only ones that tend to are, are slightly right of center. But, uh, but and the ones that are left of center believe lockdowns work, want more of them, and want to pour money into the healthcare system uh, blindly. So, okie doke. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, this was really um, informative, and you're very, you're a very lively um, <laughs> presenter. And I, we really uh, appreciate your um, directness and and honesty there in this, um, in the work that you're doing. Well, I want to thank Sylvain for reaching out and inviting us. Both Brian and I both uh, appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to talk to you because all we can do is, is give information. We're still working like every day, 13 hour days behind the scenes trying to get a premier, but, uh, but it's really going to take all of you. So what can we do to help you? Drive your premiers crazy. Do go to your MPPs, your MLAs. Go to to. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the term. Dans la belle province du Quebec, but but make go to your local elected 
representatives in your provincial government. It's a provincial mandate that has to change. And so drive your politicians crazy till your premier pivots. Okay. Without a premier, we can't walk this back. And if you find a premier that'll listen, I would be happy to do this presentation to their cabinet. All right, uh, Sylvain. Thank you very much, David. Yeah. Thank you very much, yes, uh, David. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks, thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Please share Thanks. with everyone. Good night, Thanks. everyone. Thanks, David. Thank you, Sylvain. I will. You count on it. Yeah. yeah. And thank you, Ari. Thank you.